Ah, the Jeffrey. Another week, ah. another Paratopia. Ah, uh, yes. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. Are you ready for this? I am ready for this. I, I feel as though I need to say one thing or two or five before we begin. Oh, boy. Here we go. We made a big deal out of uh, on the Whitley Strieber episode saying that um, he had this big analogy about staring into the eyes of a dog, right? <laughs> and I, in my infinite editing wisdom, didn't figure out that that, that was actually part of our after chat conversation. Yeah, right. It wasn't in the show. So you talk about it at the beginning of the show. You talk about it at the end of the show. And thankfully, nobody actually asked us what the fuck we're talking about because we never actually got to that. Right. But, but why don't right. we just tell people anyway in case they're curious, which apparently they're not. <laughs> well, well, no. I mean, after we got done the interview, uh, we had, uh, I'd say, a, a decently long chat with Whitley off air. And the subject of the fear came up and dealing with fear and all of that. And he made the analogy um, of, he said, Do you, have you ever tried to look into the eyes of a dog, like stare at a dog in eye to eye? And he says, they always tend to kind of get that worried look and kind of look away from you like they can't look at you for very long. And I said, yeah, okay, I'll, I, I know what you're talking about. And I forget how he verbalized it, but it was something to the effect of, it's because you know something they don't, and that that is a recognizable feeling between you and the dog. The dog is is not aware of mortality and is not, uh, and you are, and it's just this notion of something being a much much greater excess of intelligence than yourself, uh, and is able to see more of what reality is and how life works and all that. And a dog doesn't have that. So he was making that analogy that that's why a dog can't look at our eyes. And so therefore, when it comes to a being of some sort, that that's why we have a hard time being around them or looking at. I can't look him in the face. I've said that before. Very hard to look him in the face for me. So uh, it was just a really – it was a great analogy. I mean it, my jaw just hit the floor when he said – I was like, man, that's that's perfect. Even Even if the real reason a dog can't look at you is because, you know – it smells something else and becomes diverted. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's 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 not the point. Is that is that is that sirloin? I'll be back. You know. Next up on our agenda, <laughs> and this will teach you to not ignore my emails because I'm going to throw this right out of left field. Oh, okay. I think we have some books to give away. That's true. <laughs> so, what are we going to do with those? Uh, what, let's say we do a trivia, uh, question. Okay. So what this is, is it's, uh, an autographed copy of Mark Nesbitt's what? Um, well, we, we have two and we'll, we'll kind of talk. One is a ghost hunting handbook and the other one is a, uh, Gettysburg, uh, more or less like the Gettysburg ghost as in the first book detailing experiences there. And it even comes complete with a map of, the park, which is invaluable considering it's like a goddamn maze in that place. And we found that out the last time we went. <laughs> right. And ended up at the same spot. Somehow inexplicably turned around after going around a hill and through other streets. We ended up right back at Spangler Spring. So it's good to have a map with you to uh, identify the places. So I think maybe we'll do that one uh, and give that away. So trivia question. How about that? Okay. Just in time for Christmas, this giveaway. Trivia question, but this is only for subscribers. 
Yeah, you like that's how that correct. Works? That's correct. I see how that <laughs> see how that works. That's correct. Only for subscribers. And so the trivia question is. Wow, dude, it's just like a paperback. Take it easy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the trivia question is: Ed Walters, Golf Breeze. He heard voices in his head in association with the objects that he photographed. What did they call him? Ed? No, well, not oh, Ed. Okay. Well, then there's your hint. It's not Ed. Right. It is not Ed. They called him something or they referred to him by name, but it wasn't his name. So what did they call him? First person to post that to our subscriber message board will get the book. And, uh, uh, yes, and we will have a thread on there that says uh, book contest. Correct. So you just plug it in there and you win. And you win an autographed copy of whichever book you want. Winner's choice. Right. How do you like them apples? And then we'll do uh, we'll do it again next week with uh, the next book. With another book. That's right. All right. And so last up, before we get to our very special guest, Mr. Keith Chester, um, yes. shall we deal with some of the more moronic Emma Woods fallout that continues to come our way? <laughs> Funny you should put it that way, Jeremy, because that's exactly what it is. Um, yeah, I mean, we had a... A message board post, not on our message board, but on uh, another message board out there on the net. I don't know. That was kind of, I mean, started out as, uh, you know, everyone talking about your article in UFO magazine, which is now on stands everywhere. Uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> and, um, and I don't know. It, I think it, uh, it started out with me just going on to a place that I normally don't even read uh, to respond to someone who, um, uh, made light of us having premium content, and it evolved into a completely different discussion uh, by the time I got done. Actually, can uh, I just say that the, re- the the way we discovered this thread was that somebody uh, emailed me on Facebook and said, uh, I, I don't mean to ruin your Thanksgiving, but I thought you should know about this thread. It's like, you already know someone's trying to ruin your Thanksgiving when they, when they start with that premise. But then you have to look, right? <laughs> right, yeah. So I made the yeah. mistake of looking, and it was like, oh, geez, you know. Yeah. Morons are at it again. Well, it's amazing because I, I basically, I don't think anyone expected me to show up, first of all. Uh, but when I showed up on that message board to then confront this person um, who had uh, quite a lot of lip uh, to throw around until I showed up. And then after that, it was a one-line answer and then no answer after that. I answered in tandem uh, another person on that message board who said, it's time to move on from this whole Emma Woods thing. It's time to move on. We're not getting anywhere with it. We're, we're not? I mean, we're not? Really? Uh, and I said... We are. And I, well, and, I, and I know that this individual has been around ufology for a number of years. And I said, I would think someone like you who's been around this stuff this long knows what happens from, from here the same way it's happened for decades. It's like if you ignore this problem or you just say let's move on, then the nonsense continues to be the order of the day. It's like if you don't stick with your, your point to begin with, if you don't really drive it home – then this field has a tendency to just go back. It tends to revert, and it has a very short-term memory when it comes to exactly what we've been talking about in regards to hypnosis and Emma and all of that. 
Um, you know, the bottom line I said at the end of the post was you cannot differentiate confabulation from real memory, and therefore the tool and all its tangent conclusions are out with the rest of the ufological pseudoscience and wish fulfillment. That's the that's the answer here. Okay, Lillenfeld is to me one of the pinnacle points of driving this home. You know, and I said it's time to get serious about this, or or just continue chasing our tails with a tool that is is widely considered in in the psychological field to be of ill use when it comes to recovering memories. Um, and we may never get to an understanding of this, but kidding ourselves is a complete waste of effort. And so in response to that, uh, and I'm going to read this verbatim, the response to what I, I just said was quoted and bolded. And uh, this person says, and again, there it is, the real point of the article. It's not about Emma Woods. It's about Paratopia's crusade against hypnosis. She is merely being used as a tool to advance that viewpoint. <sighs> Let me make this really fucking clear. Emma Woods was not even in the picture when I first brought up the notion of, Jeremy, we've got to get on someone from the psychological field who's a name, who has the a proper education, who is specialized in understanding hypnosis and and understands the dangers and can explain this to us and our audience that this is not a useful tool for recovering memory. I have known this for years only because back in the early 90s, I asked several psychologists and explained to them how it was being utilized in this field, and they were horrified at what I was telling them and explained to me why. I knew it. The problem is, in this field, if you don't have PhD after your name, uh, when you're talking about anything from psychology to you know astrobio to whatever any kind of specialized field, you need to have someone who's properly educated to actually stand with you and say, you know, ask the question, get the answer. This is what you do. You go to the people who have the specialized education to know. I finally contacted Dr. Lillenfeld. He was very reluctant to come on. He said that he didn't think that we would have a great deal of common ground. And I said, well, I think it might be more common than you think. And I explained to him what our premise was um, in having him on the show to discuss the value of hypnotic regression. And uh, he said, well, what do you think? And I told him what I thought. He said, well, you're right, but that's only the tip of the iceberg. And, of course, that show then occurred. Interestingly enough, until we actually got on the phone with Lillenfeld that night to record the interview – I think it was the day before is when we became aware of Emma. So it almost fell in the lap of like, oh, well, here's the product of what can happen. And and that's how it happened. So if it was anybody's agenda to come uh, out for against the hypnotic retrieve stuff, you know, I'll take the blame for that because I said to Jeremy, we, we really need to get somebody on about that. And I, I found Dr. Lillenfeld and convinced him to come on. But you, you didn't, you don't, have an agenda in the way that they're saying it. Because here's here's the scenario that not just these people on the, the message board, but I've seen in another article online, you know, another monkey who's like, we've got to investigate Jeremy Vaney and, and Emma Woods. And, you know, these are the people that we need to investigate. It's like, what's his agenda? What's what's really behind why he's doing this? That <laughs> it's was, wrong. <laughs> well, that's just it. It's like, no. I mean, in no other situation. I mean, you don't say – 
Gee, Bob Woodward just exposed Nixon and Watergate. We've really got to investigate Bob Woodward. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, it doesn't happen yeah. that way. I mean, you you know, in the me- in the regular media, you would maybe say a paper has a liberal or conservative slant, and maybe you read those sort of things with a grain of salt. But facts are facts, right. and if David Jacobs, if we said if if we said anything on the show, or if I said anything in the article. That was erroneous. Uh, he'd sue, and Bill Burns knows this. Bill Burns has, uh, you know, a lawyer's mentality, if not degree. I think he does have a degree, as a matter of fact, at this point. Uh, so, again, these are the facts. Deal with them. It doesn't matter, even if we did have an agenda, but we don't. And well, no, I mean, I had a, a kind of a thorn in me for, you know, since since about ninety three to say. Really, what are people really remembering? Because I've always been very suspicious of and, – and see, here's the problem is that in this field, when you're talking about a case – now, let's say you're talking about an abduction case that somebody comes forward and talks about. If somebody wanted to look at me based on my experiences, that makes sense to know who is he? What does he do for a living? How much money does he make? Is he destitute? Does he rob people? I mean, you know – uh, that's, yeah, I can understand the quality of the messenger when it comes to a UFO case. We are presenting a factual thing that's backed up by professionals in the psychological field. This is not a question of our credibility. We've brought guests on to attest to this. Um, well, and, and that's so it's hypnosis. A- and for Emma Woods in particular, it's all the evidence that she has gathered and Jacob's response to it. I mean, it's all out there in the public for you to see. Correct. And, and um, you know, and, and to say there's an agenda here, it's like, well, no, there's an agenda. It's this is a, a an inaccurate tool that is that is muddying our waters of trying to get a handle on what this experience is really like. And as I said before, the use of this tool and the widespread cultural contamination of its dissemination through books, through media, through TV, um, has really colored this in a way that is not accurate. Because we're using an inaccurate tool. And so not only that, but how much damage has this done to people? You know, I mean, there have been countless people who have told me, I wish I'd never gone for hypnotic regression because now I'm less functioning than what I was before. Well, you've heard some of those people on the show and you'll hear another one next week. Uh, But it it just strikes me that um, they're making up a narrative about me and about us in the same way <laughs> that their favorite pseudotherapists are making up narratives. It's like, well, I think they have an agenda. Or, you know, um, specifically he was singling me out and saying, I think Vaney has an agenda. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, in both the post and in the article. And so you say, okay, I, he has an agenda. And then someone who is a listener of our show comes on their message board and, you know, just trashes me personally and yeah. all of this. And very specifically, he stopped listening to our show because we did the David Jacobs episode. And he's a big David right. Jacobs fan. I mean, he emailed us this. He wrote it on the message board. It's it's not news. So for him yeah. to come on a message board and, you know, list things about me that seem suspect, that weren't suspect when he listened to the Culture of Contact <laughs> show and Peritopia right. all up until then, I mean, then I was just fine. You know, the comedy was fine. My story was fine. I wasn't shady. Now, all of a sudden, right. everything's in question. It's like, oh, fuck you. Like, I don't see through this. But, of course, they're doing this on another message board that they know I'm not going to come and write on. 
So they have free reign to just trash me, you know, as much as they want. Um, well, yeah. And they're making up a narrative. So he comes on and insults me and all of this. And then the other guy chimes back in with, right, yeah, you know, that is shady. And then it, they just sort of reconfirm each other's belief that I have an agenda and that I'm not to be trusted and blah, blah, blah. And they're just making this stuff up as they go along. It, it's just, it's incredible and obvious. That's the thing I don't get. It's so obvious. It's like, you know, maybe not even worth commenting on now, except just to say for all these people who are like, let's shoot the messenger. That's not how this works, folks. If I said anything that wasn't factual, uh, I'd be in a court right now. You'd know, you'd be hear about it, right? You'd hear about it. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. And, and, and as I said before, it's, it never ceases to amaze me that people would rather take the word or the expertise. And I'm just going to pull this out of the air. Hint, hint. An artist and a history professor about the notion of psychology or pop psychology or hypnosis, they will, they would rather have that laid on the table than a man who teaches at Emory University psychology has written books, one called Pseudoscience and Psychology, who has researched this, who is ultimately qualified to lay the letter of what's what here with this. Um, he's not the only one, uh, you know, I mean, by no means is he the final word, but he's a hell of a lot more of a final word on the use of this thing to retrieve memories than would be the people involved in this field who are practicing this. Well, but we've trained ourselves to just call people like that debunkers, you know, it's like if they're not involved in ufology actively and they have letters after their name that imply, uh, oh, I don't know, education. (laughs) <laughs> right then well, know, and, and as i said well yeah yeah and it's one of those things where i said you know when your car breaks down do you go to the florist to get it fixed you know it's one of those things it's like you know i think it, it's really i mean you come home uh and have flowers stuck in your carburetor with a note that says i, I don't know what the hell's wrong with your car i mean you, you go to a mechanic you go to the people who know um and and so if we can bring up the bard mckenna yet again in this conversation uh, on this show that uh you know, he said, you know, it's fine to talk about weird shit, uh, but in the end, you've got to go find out and you've got to go to the people who would know how to explain the anomaly or would be able to better explain it. Uh, and I think that's what we did with Scott and, and having him on the show. And, uh, uh, and that just started the ball rolling. And once that show came out, it has been a strange uh, thing that these shows have just dropped into place and we haven't really hunted for them. Uh, it's just the narrative has, has just kind of made itself from here on out. And now next week we've got another one yet that is uh, coming forward. And I, and I said Emma would not be the only one and you see, you know, I was right. And th- this this guest next week will not be the last either. I bet, I'll bet money on it. Yeah, on that um, note, I don't think that it's our responsibility to just constantly keep having on people who come forward. Um, now. because I think we get it. I mean, at this point and after next week, I mean, the, the, the deal will be sealed. I mean, we'll yeah, all I, get it. All right? Yeah, I think we should put it to bed pretty much after that. I mean, I don't, I don't know how much more that we could provide past that. I mean, really, what more can you do? And so at, at a certain point, you have to lay it in front of everybody and go, look, just look, pay attention for Christ's sakes. And, and if, and if people want to cling on to this, then, 
you know, the rest of us can just move on. I mean, that's the only thing you can do. There's, there's not much to do after that. Yeah. So moving on. Moving on. <laughs> Are we okay to move on? Yeah, sure. I'm okay. fine. You? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was just thinking, is there anything else we wanted to address? I, I guess just the fact that the original poster on that message board said to you, uh, you know, I knew that you would be reading this. Because you had said, well, why don't you, you know where to find Jeremy? Just go email him or go to our own message board. Well, I think they're cowards. Well, of course they're cowards, they're, they're because cowards. then his response is, well, their message board is, I was going to post something over there, but it's a ghost town. It's like, what does that even, even if that's true, what does that matter? If you have a question yeah. about my motives or why I included comedy in the article or whatever, ask me. Right. But you don't have a real right. question. You have a narrative that you want to set up in your head so that you can demonize me so that you can ignore the facts. Like, it right. doesn't matter. Again, it doesn't matter, you know. It's all the credible I am. I don't have to be credible. I could be a monkey with a pen. All I have to do is jot down the facts and present them. <laughs> and you may not like that yeah. presentation. You may not agree with the style of it, but the facts are the facts. Right, right. And it, it's it's all diversionary at this point. And and I think it, that's pretty recognizable if if anybody uh, you know cares to step back and look at the back and forth uh, between all of this stuff. You can see what the narrative is. Is and you can see what the facts are, and then you can see how the diversionary tactics from people who simply don't want to let it go. Um, well, I just I like how the moron who wrote the article, uh, and again, it's not even really worth addressing because who cares? It's like anyone who's anyone in this field knows that what we did was true and solid work, and it's yeah. just these you know anonymous cowards and idiots who are like these holdovers who are like, oh, I I don't think he's credible. We got to look into his background or whatever. It's like. Look yeah. all you want. I mean, we've got our show, 90-something <laughs> episodes online. It's all right there. Well, I mean, My background is right here for you to look at. It's in the article that, you know, this show that we did on this stuff. I mean, it's not as though I'm some anonymous guy or I'm hiding. You know, right. it's like all right there. So, like, while you're writing this article about how you have to look into my background, uh, why not just look into my background? <laughs> well, well, I, well, and here's the here's the icing on the cupcake. The individual who uh, said what he did on this other message board, uh, and I made the point to say, you know, if any of you cowards in this room want to, you know, look up Jeremy Vaney and email him, his email's widely available. I mean, he's not exactly a reclusive figure. Okay, you know, why don't you write him instead of? posting this somewhere where he doesn't read and doesn't post. And so today I'm at work and I'm getting ready to pack up and go. And I get an email from this individual on the message board. He emailed me, not Jeremy, me. And something I'll cop to here is that the minute that I read this asinine post or reply, I banned him off our board because what's the point? I don't, I don't see the point in aggravating myself with, with with somebody like that, it's just it's counterproductive to me, and I don't have time for it. And in that letter that was sent to me, uh, he talks about what you said and what you wrote on your message board and what you put in the description of this, you know, of the podcast. I'm like, why are you emailing me? Go ask him. You know, no, I, I, and that's why I called you after work and I said, am I like the easy one to argue with? Uh, you know, and in my reply, I've, I've basically said, look, you know, if you've got a problem with something Jeremy said, why are you emailing me about it? You know, he's much more willing 
to entertain you probably than I will be because I have no fuse for these people. My fuse is burned and gone. It was reduced to ash many years ago. I don't have time for this arguing back and forth. The facts are laid out, and I'm not going to sit here and and uh, and go back and forth about is the hybrid scenario legitimate anymore? Uh, is it not? In my opinion, no, it's not. Do people perceive hybrids these days? Sure. What does that mean? Does that you know the hybrid breeding program? Uh, all of that is that real? In my opinion, no, it's not because it was born out of the hypnotic regression sessions. That's where that came from. So you know that's that's it. I've said my piece with that. I've said this before, and and I'm I'm not arguing about it. That's it. You don't agree? I'm sorry. You know, uh, it, it, it's the way it is. So uh, I'm just amazed that I get this letter essentially quoting you and saying. Why this? Why did he say this? Why Why are you asking me? Go ask him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, after writing in his thread, go ask Jeremy. And after him saying, whoa, there's ghost town over there. Like, uh, yeah, I mean, clearly they don't want to confront me. I don't know why. I, I'm just like, you know. Maybe because uh, they're not going to like the answer? I don't know. And and I mean, in this letter, I'm just going to read this, this this little short sentence. It says... And I'm paraphrasing because it says, so again, if the Emma Woods case absolutely positively proves that there are no hybrids. No, that's not it. Lillenfeld's episode, uh, what we learned there, what we've learned about the different takes or the different narratives that run through the different researchers who do different techniques on people and ask different questions come back with differing cases. You can see the thematic per researcher. That should tell you something. That's the clue. Hello. Uh, I don't think Emma Woods is what anyone is betting the farm on that hypnosis is not a legitimate tool. It's a result of that. It's a result. It's not what you hang your hat on. What I'm more willing to hang my hat on is somebody like Scott Lillenfeld. Uh, what I'm more willing to ho- hold my hat on is is the – uh, the people I've talked to in years past in the psychological field who've told me exactly the same thing. I mean, this is this is not something that uh, uh, relies upon Emma Woods. If Emma Woods had never come along, Lillenfeld would be the episode that we'd be still talking about. <laughs> that would be it. Yeah, but I mean, when I say, Emma, you know, when I say like the hybrid thing is dead, uh, the Jacobs hybrid thing is dead. Yeah, Emma Woods did kill that storyline, and next week's guest, Brian Reed, will put a nail in that coffin. I mean, that just is what it is. And and so when you look at, okay, we have Lillenfeld who says, as do most, if not all, I mean, somebody supply me with somebody who's written something in the last, I don't know, five years, maybe, ten years, Mm -hmm. uh, that says otherwise. But the majority opinion, at least, of psychology and psychiatry is that hypnosis is not good for retrieving memory. Correct. Um, and then, as Jeff has been saying, you add on to that the fact that the the so-called memory you're trying to retrieve is from some sort of altered state. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's – or something missing, you know, missing time. Then, you know, we don't know what we're dealing with there, right? So you've got that, and then you've got out of that, still using that, is Bud Hopkins, and so he creates this story of women being impregnated or having their fetuses stolen 
for some reason. And of course, then we have on Deb Cobble, who was Kathy Davis, who was the very woman he was talking about, who says she right. never said that. She said it was a dream and that she very, very much believes that she just had a, you know, a miscarriage from her real husband at the time. So it's yeah. like, yeah. so he took a dream and decided that that was reality, right? Which is something that a, a guy like Bud Hopkins would say is wrong and new agey, I imagine, except here he is doing it all the time. Uh, he and Jacobs taking dream material and saying, well, this is really reflective of what really happened. So he takes that, he creates that story, that story gets out there. Jacobs furthers that story with this hybrid program. Now the, the fetuses are all grows up now, and they're part of this hybrid program to take over the Earth. Except now we know that that's bullshit. So, yeah, it's <laughs> dead. If you don't like that, tough shit. Those are facts. <laughs> right. <laughs> Wow, you're animated. <laughs> well, it's like, duh. I mean, it's like I look at my bookshelf. It's funny. I look at my bookshelf, and I have every Jacobs book. I have every Bud Hopkins book. It's not like I had an agenda to destroy anything or no. uh, or anything like that. I, no, I want this to be real. I would love to have an answer. I, I mean, it made sense to me at one time. Certainly well, the fear wants and all of me. that. I mean, you, you have to look at everything. Yeah. But now it's just been deconstructed for me. You know, right. I mean, Lillenfeld, you, you're the one who really was uh, instrumental in, in telling me how bad hypnosis was. So I guess, you know, if, if I were indoctrinated into an agenda, I'm going to blame you. It's yours. That's fine. <laughs> but then we have Lillenfeld on who's like solidifies everything you're saying. And it's like you look into right. his background. It's like, Jesus, this guy is the guy you would go to. He knows what he's talking about. And then Bill Burns, of all people, is like, yeah, we shouldn't be using hypnosis in this field. And Bill Burns, you know, runs some sort of psych clinic in, or is on the board of directors of some, like, psych clinic in California, you know? So uh, all this stuff just adds up, and then you see it in action, and then you get Emma Woods handed to you, and it's like, here it is in action, you know? Right. And then and then you get the people stepping forward. Whitley Strieber, Deb Cobble, right. you get these people stepping forward going, yeah, even though we had hypnosis, we don't recommend it. Well, what do right. you want? What do you want? What are we supposed to do with this information? Are we supposed to just sit on it? Or are we supposed to go, mm, yeah, you know what, ufology, why don't you just keep going on in the dark about this? No. What would you do? <laughs> what would you do if these people came to you with these things? Would you just yeah. sit on it? Or would you fucking release it to the public? Responsibly, well, it's, it's, in a responsible manner. It, it goes back again to what I've, I've said now for so many years, and I'm tired of repeating it. It's like, if you don't care enough to question this field if you don't care enough to go and find out for yourself and to actively you know, pick up the phone, make the calls, find this out, find that out for yourself, then I question how much you really care about knowing something or understanding something. I mean, that's, that's kind of the point. It's like I, I can't get over the fact that you know someone would sit and watch a TV program in which uh, a man tells his story – and you get the name of the man, and you know where what state he lives in. Go look up his name. Give him a call. <laughs> Hi, my name is Jeff, and I I research this. I have a show on, you know, or I'm writing a paper on this, or use whatever excuse you want, and then talk to him and say, you know, how about this? How about that? What about this? What about that? And get a feel for yourself here. I mean, if you don't care enough to question it, if you don't care enough to examine factual data. If you don't care enough to go to the right people to ask the right questions, uh, then it's 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 a hobby to you, and it's not a hobby here at this show. So um, 
you know, that, that becomes my end game with this. It's like, if you care enough, you'll question and you'll continue to break this thing down and build new things and tear that down. This is what science does. And everybody wants to say we're pseudoscientifical right here in, in UFO, UFO land. Let's try to do what they do. Let's try and look at facts and then figure out some kind of you know random abstract and build upon that and then go, nope, that's not it. Throw that away. Jacques Vallée has changed his outlook on this numerous times. That's what you do. And so as we learn new things, as, we, as new things are exposed or brought to light, those things have to be, okay, let's – all right. Then this gets set aside and we move on to somewhere else. But even as you say that, I realize the morons on that message board don't understand Jacques Vallée either. Well, yeah, they referred to him as dull. <laughs> <laughs> so if you can get – if you all in the audience can get any kind of sense of the kind of individuals we're talking about, I don't know why we've spent the past 20 minutes even discussing them. Yeah. I mean but it's funny. It's I, like, it, it's, these are, this is a clear-cut case of arrogance has replaced intelligence. I mean that is what that message board is all about. People yeah. who just harumph, harumph, harumph and don't know what the fuck they're saying. And, um, and it's always been that way. <laughs> just ridiculous. Yeah. Well, let's move on to a guy who's actually, again, gone out and – done the work and found out the facts and uh, is bringing them to the show this week. Yes. And this is actually, I think a good follow-up uh, to Jacques Vallée in a weird way. Correct. And in fact, I think if you, he, if you line up Jacques Vallée's book, if you read Jacques Vallée's wonders in the sky, and then you read our next guest, Keith Chester's book, strange company, and then you read Leslie Kane's book, then I think you almost have a sense of a sequel because Jacques book deals a lot with testimony during war times prior to flight, right? So from right. around the world, various yeah. wartime scenarios. And then Keith Chester's book deals with uh, World War II, right? Uh, you know, pilot sightings and that sort of thing. And then Leslie Kane's book is military and pilot sightings from, what, the 70s on, I think? Right. So it's interesting. I mean, you, you almost get a a, a sort of – even flow through that. And isn't it, isn't it interesting that we have just in the last couple of years, we have these, um, what are by, I guess, pretty much all standards, right? All three books are, uh, considered great, uh, great case books. Yeah. Yeah. So I would definitely put Keith Chester's book in that lineup of need to read case books. Uh, I certainly learned a lot during this episode, yeah. not just about Foo Fighters, but about how German ufologists perceive ufology, about the Robertson panel tie into right. all of this, about cover-ups. I mean, just all of this stuff that you don't associate with Foo Fighters and then the fleshing out of what Foo Fighters were, you know, in terms of how they were reported. Um, right. It ain't little blobs in the sky. Let's put it that way. No, no. And I must, I must say it's good to get back to the actual enigmatic presence discussion as opposed to <laughs> as opposed to what's going on in the field. As important as that is, it's nice to get back to actually focusing on uh, the strange stuff uh, a la Jacques Vallée's episode and kind of continuing on with that. And Keith and I actually met. Uh, Keith, uh, we recorded this. He came to my house uh, to record the interview because he lives not very far from me at all. And we actually met uh, way back in the early 90s uh, at a MUFON meeting in uh, Perryville, Maryland, and again, much it's really strange because uh, Keith and I, I, I remember him vaguely. Once he showed up last night, I remembered his face, but I couldn't remember the name and put that together. 
but I had met him a couple of times there. He'd heard me speak there and vice versa. And it's really interesting that Lee uh, Townsend and I uh, reconnected after so many years, and now Keith and I, uh, again, have, have kind of reconnected, uh, uh, even though we, we weren't uh, doing any work together or anything like that. Um, it, it, it is strange how this is all kind of like rolling together again. So really interesting guy and a, and a, a really solid researcher as far as uh, putting these reports together. So without further ado, Keith Chester. Peritopia, please welcome to the program our very special guest, Mr. Keith Chester, author of Strange Company, Military Encounters with UFOs in World War II. Uh, Keith, thank you very much for doing the program and welcome. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks, Jeff. I really appreciate being on. This is great. Well, don't don't count those chickens before they're hatched. <laughs> you know who we are. <laughs> yeah, this might not be great. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so what is your background in, in in ufology and why did you decide to concentrate on specifically on World War II? Yeah, I saw three books on a display that was uh, Whitley Strieber's Communion, Bud Hopkins' Intruder, and Gary Kinder's Light Years. And that was 1987. Mm-hmm. I had an interest in UFOs because I had a childhood sighting, but that was in the mid-60s, what was not too dramatic, and I had a casual interest. I saw those books, and for some reason, I was completely compelled to dive into the subject matter, and I tackled everything that was coming out, because at that time, literature was exploding within the UFO phenomenon. That led me to a situation where, in 1989, I started to investigate my own case, which had to do with a teacher who worked in Frederick County, and she was employed in 1969 at the Pentagon through CETA, which was a civilian employment training agency, as a summer hire. She worked for the Office of Civil Defense under a Colonel Sullivan. And I found this story out through a friend of mine who was one of her students. And at that time, she was telling the class that she had her own knowledge of UFOs because, of course, about that time, I think uh, – Charles Burlitz and William Moore had put out the Roswell incident. Mm. So she felt like she could start talking about this uh, topics. So uh, what happened was in 1969, or 1970 actually, I'm sorry, she was in there and Colonel Sullivan was her direct boss and it was just her and Colonel Sullivan in this office. Other military officers showed up one afternoon in his office and were discussing UFOs and occupants that they had in their possession and what they should do with them, what they should tell the public. And she tried not to listen too much, but it was astounding to her. Uh, And about that same time, that summer, the Office of Civil Defense, which was located in the Pentagon, was broken into. Something happened in the library that caused a lot of concern. And the FBI came in and investigated her, her friends, her family, because she was a suspect. She doesn't know what took place, and that really frightened her. So it took her a long time, of course, to talk about her experience. That, so I went up, and I investigated her. But before I went to contact her, not having any experience, I contacted who was the leading authority in the field, Leonard Stringfield, uh, for crash and retrieval UFO research. He immediately took on the case as far as being my mentor. So basically... He helped direct me into what to say, what not to say, how to approach her, and what to listen for, and of course, supply him with reports of the information I received. And I did that, uh, and I followed that case for about 
two years, it was a dead end. I couldn't really find any other leads. And in the meantime, Leonard Stringfield told me about his World War II signing. And that fascinated me. So I knew at one point I wanted to, to really go into the World War II angle because I had read a chapter here, an article here, and there was not much on the wartime sightings. And his was so dramatic, I thought, well, if he had a sighting at that point in the war, there had to be more. So by 1999, I devoted full-time research into the subject and uh, went to College Park National Archives, too, and spent four years there going through the documentation. And I wanted to make sure that I would approach the subject not knowing a lot about it and look at it with neutral eyes as much as possible. So before I went into the documentation, I wanted to make sure that there was at least one document in the public domain that indicated that the phenomenon during the war was indeed real. And that came about in the Robertson Panel Report, which came out through uh, FOIA in 1977 or so, which was a report generated uh, by Robert Durant, I believe, who was there. A host of scientists met in Washington. It was hosted by the CIA to determine if UFOs were a national security threat. And at that time, the UFO activity over the United States had escalated. Around the world, it escalated. Uh, the flyovers for Washington, D.C. was a very important sighting in July of 52. So they discussed this over three days. I believe this report was sanitized, obviously. And um, in that report, they talked about the Foo Fighters of World War II and what they felt were nothing but St. Elmo's fire, electromagnetic disturbances, or whatever. It wasn't a definite answer at all. But within that report, I quote, it was on a section called On Lack of Danger. If the term flying saucers had been popular in 1943 through 1945, these objects would have been so labeled. And I felt that was a very out-of-the-ordinary statement to be in this report if indeed it was St. Elmo's fire. <laughs> right. So What is there to be afraid of? Right? What's so? Yeah. yeah. That verified my attempt to go into the archives, which meant I was going to be tackling the Office of Scientific Research and Development records, Army Air Force records, uh, Army records, Office of Strategic Services, OSS, predecessor to CIA. And, of course, the term flying saucers or UFOs did not exist. So I was really going in blind. And what I did learn was it had to do with terminology. And that was a very key important factor of how I conducted my investigation. Mm. So Keith, are, are you, uh, are you just bucking to get shot in the back of the head in a vacant parking lot somewhere? Is that what you're after <laughs> no, here? No, no. <laughs> I mean, wow. I mean, aside from the food fighters in world war two, what other kinds of craft were seen that we didn't know what it was. We thought maybe it was the Germans. We thought, you know, whoever the, the Japs, who, uh, whose stuff is it? We don't know. What other kinds of craft were around the Foo Fighter type of era? What we have, since I was following the documentation, let me start with the Foo Fighters and begin by saying the Foo Fighter was only one term applied to phenomenon that occurred in probably late December 1944 to about March 1945. And that term was applied by the 415th Night Fighter Squadron, which were stationed in France. And they literally named 
the objects after Smokey Stover cartoons of the 1940s. Mm -hmm. and, but the phenomenon had existed since 1933. A variety of shapes, sizes, colors, triangles, wedge formations, uh, circular, cigar-shaped, uh, zeppelin-shaped, and these type of descriptions were reported in some of the memoranda I was uncovering because in the mission reports, as the war progressed, especially after the United States came into effect, mm -hmm. they had a section called Phenomenon and Phenomena. Mm -hmm. Now, what was very curious about that is when I would read the report, of course, you have to look at it through the eyes of World War II. Right, yeah. They were using terminology that they could apply to what it looked like. For instance, they would have a sighting, and they would say things like, looked like a zeppelin, mm -hmm. appeared to be a balloon. So this was very key in me understanding that this obviously is something that really wasn't what they're saying it is, yet it's under the term phenomena under that section. Right. And I'm looking at sanitized reports. Oh, so it's all descriptive based on Very descriptive. common things. So the Foo Fighters is not necessarily that famous photograph that's always on TV of right. the fighter planes and you see a blob of light. It's not always just a blob of light. No. That's, that's some, not technically yeah. Foo Fighters were across the board generalization terms. Yeah, that was that one unit naming them and it seemed to be that this, what they had seen were typically circular. Mm. And they would see them in multiples of twos, three, singular, anywhere from the size of a baseball to the size of a full moon sometimes two or three times larger than their aircraft. Mm. And uh, typically 99% of the, the sightings were not discernible features in terms of wings oh, okay. or some type of fuselage. That's what mystified them. And the, the way they were acting in, in the actual mission reports, right. it was unnerving the pilots. Mm. And that was another thing that I wanted to follow was the, the documentation revealed that the intelligence operatives were completely mystified by what they were hearing. And in the beginning, they would actually ridicule the pilots. Ah. And then by, as the war progressed, by 1944, they realized, hey, we can't do this because this could be potential secret technology, and we're now causing these guys not to report it. Okay. Okay. So let me just ask, uh, did you find, based on the sightings reported, did you find any kind of correlation on what the mission was or what the pilots were doing uh, or what they were going to do? Like, was it, was it, did you find like, a, like, are this a bombing run to or fro or, um, or some kind of covert behind dropping troops behind lines? It, was there any correlation of a sighting happens when they're doing this or a sighting happens when they're doing that? Uh, but not, routine patrols or anything like that? Or is it pretty much just across the board? It doesn't really matter what the actual mission objective is. Yeah, it was across the board, but typically these were lone missions or non-combat missions that these were occurring. Hmm. That's what made it remarkable because they were able to observe the phenomenon. They were able to actually attack it. They were given orders to attack. Really? But with the Foo Fighters, and I, I typically discuss that because the 415th Night Fighter Squadron had a lot of reports and if it wasn't for the 415th Night Fighter Squadron, the Foo Fighter phenomenon would have not broken into the press. Uh -huh. And it didn't, it broke into the press in January of 45 in Time and Newsweek okay. because of Associated Press. And these objects would typically appear coming back from a mission, going to a mission. Hmm. And um, typically you don't hear much about the combat element 
Like exactly. they're not seeing these things in dog fights. Although, no. who the hell would be looking for a flying right. saucer in a dog fight? Right? <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, you've got the Luftwaffe trying to blow you out of the sky. That's the last thing you're worrying about. Guess, exactly. You know? So if they were there, they just were not aware. Right. Right. How far did these reports go, and how far do they lead into what we now know as, or what we what we refer to as some kind of cover up? I mean, clearly, sanitage reports are one thing. When this all comes forward from World War II. Does it just disappear at a certain point? Like, did your research end at a certain point where I can't? I'm, I'm not getting any further with this. Like, this is what I got, and now it's blank from here forward. My research ended in December '45. That's where I stopped, and that's mm-hmm. where, at that time, they were still questioning the phenomenon. Mm-hmm. However, at this time, you have to realize that there was a whole element that was being utilized in terms of the German documentation, the engineers, the scientists. We're all being interrogated, and I uncovered a document that actually had a question on it that pertained to what they called the balls of fire, Mm. which was what the British called the phenomenon, and also what the Americans called the phenomenon in in the Pacific theater of operation. Mm. So there was a real concern. It didn't end after the war because we go into 1946 with the the Scandinavian sightings again. Right. And uh, it just kept escalating. Was this across – I mean how far across the board did this go? Was it just the Americans and the British or or did the Germans have sightings of strange objects? They had them. The enemy – the Axis uh, forces did have them. However, the documentation that I've uncovered mm-hmm. is strictly through the eyes of the Royal Air Force and the Army Air Force. Okay. Now, interestingly enough, we hear about after the war intelligence officers discussing – that they interrogated German prisoners mm-hmm. who were saying that, of course, because that question, what was it? They didn't know either. And there's a famous account that I uncovered where in January 45, one of the veterans in my book had been working for the, um, I guess, the aviation industry after the war. And so they met in Niagara Falls area for a after-the-war meeting. Okay. All the guys were veterans, and it happened that an intelligence officer was giving a – a lecture on World War II, and uh, after the lecture, this gentleman who actually saw a Foo Fighter said, hey, you know, you talked about everything but the Foo Fighters. And the intelligence officer said, oh, you're one of those, and started to laugh and said, no, uh, you're absolutely right. I didn't talk about those, but they were in a situation where we were actually hearing transmissions of German night fighters reporting the same objects that the British night fighters were seeing or the American night fighter pilots were seeing. So there was confusion because neither side understood what it was they were seeing and blaming the others. And what's very startling is that the testimony that is in the public domain that I've compiled in the book, that indicates there were sightings that were straight from the annals of science fiction. These are remarkable sightings. These are can't be supported other than the witness themselves. The veterans say, we reported it. It was in the intelligence report mm-hmm. that we generated, but they weren't in the reports that I uncovered at the archives. Okay. And, uh, but there is one particular document that came out that indicates that something remarkable was being seen, mm-hmm. was being reported, and a, I call it a crumb. Uh, okay. A crumb we were able to find is Dr. David Clark and Andy Roberts uncovered this in the British archives. And it happened to be a sighting in 1942 over Turin, Italy, okay. where the bomb crew were flying back from a mission, and they looked down and saw what they appeared to be a Zeppelin-esque 
object about uh, two to three hundred feet long. Uh, they saw a row of windows with red coming out from inside that mm. appeared to be illuminated from the inside, traveling at about 500 miles per hour down in the Alps. It, it, it was definitely intelligently controlled. Huh. Uh, they went back and reported this to their intelligence officers. So they, they filed an extensive report. They were, th- they were accused of drinking. They were accused of everything. So you're thinking, well, we have all these, these reports indicate the veterans said this, but there's still no real verification that it was re- being reported. If you right. really want to follow it critically. Right. So they uncovered a report, and here's what number five group, which is one of their fighter groups, reported to Bomber Command. And okay. this is, quote, here was a copy of a report received from a crew of a Lancaster after raid on Turin. The crew refuses to be shaken in their story in the face of the usual banter. It's not a lot, but it's very significant to indicate that they were being ridiculed. Adamant, yeah. yeah they so. were adamant about what they saw and wouldn't, wouldn't back down from talking about exactly. it. Exactly. And it was defined what they, the British were saying at the time, what they called a rocket phenomenon. Their reports were being generated as rocket phenomena. Hmm. And what, what was being debated at the time, they could never understand, how could a rocket take a 90-degree turn? Right, yeah. yeah how could they, how, would the fuel last for five, ten minutes? Right. Why would it glow for five? How could it possibly outmaneuver our aircraft in a combat situation? Hmm. And that's what was really startling to them. How, how often do you see any sort of, I guess you wouldn't see it, but how often is it indicated in any report that there was visual evidence gathered, such as photographs or what have you? I mean, that's about all you would have back in that day, but did any of these guys photograph any of these things in any meaningful way? Is there anything in public domain that was right. photographed back then that that is still to this day, you know, un, uh, you know unexplained phenomena of some sort? Well, they claim the, the veterans I spoke with is about a dozen who actually saw the phenomenon. New photographs were being taken. They mm-hmm. were aware of that through discussions with other pilots. And there were photographic uh, units. That's all they did. And of course, you walk, watch a World War II documentary. Fighters had them, the bombers had them, there were cameras everywhere. Right. Uh, but that has not reached the public domain. There are a few photographs of the, of the Foo Fighters. Right. But yeah. they're still challenged. There's no provenance in terms of where, what, where were those photographs generated from? Right. Are they a flare? Are they something? Who knows? Uh, drop of emulsion, yeah. bad spot. Yeah, that's, yeah, that sort of thing. Um, it, are they referred to in reports at all? The, the visual data, like, is it mentioned at all in the reports that you know, visual data was confiscated or materials were confiscated or this team was debriefed and told, don't talk about this or no, anything that's, like that. That sort of thing is not ever going to come out on paper. No, no that, that comes from the people who were there who told, who said to me that, yes, we had unit, uh, people from Washington come in, investigate mm-hmm. the, the phenomenon, and go up with our fighters uh, to research it. Hmm. And interestingly enough, the Robertson panel report talked about the most knowledgeable person in World War II on the subject. And that happened to be a Dr. David T. Griggs. Okay. Dr. Griggs was a physicist. He was attached to every intelligence operation in World War II. Mm-hmm. He was a radar expert. And, I, yeah, excuse me, he was not a physicist. He was a radar expert. Okay. He worked out of the War Department and had an office in the War Department. And he was actually assigned to all theaters of operation for on-ground radar air, radar, whatever. Right. So he investigated the phenomenon at length. He was asked by General Arnold, who was then the commanding officer of the, of the complete Army Air Forces, to investigate the phenomenon. Huh. 
And the reason we know this is in 1969, Dr. James McDonald, meteorological uh, physicist at University in Arizona, mm-hmm. tracked Dr. Griggs down mm-hmm. and interviewed him by phone. And I have his notes from the University of Arizona. And Dr. Griggs stated, yes, I investigated the phenomenon both in the European theater mm-hmm. and in the Pacific theater. After the war was over, I went in and we interrogated Japanese authorities, and he didn't have an answer. He said reports were generated by him. Those reports have never been found. But Dr. McDonald, in his notes, indicates that he felt that Griggs was not completely forthcoming. Hmm. So obviously there was something there because Dr. Griggs was one of the first members of the Rand Corporation after the war ended. Oh, okay. So he stayed in with you know the high levels of the United States. <coughs> right, exactly. Um, so there was no inkling of we thought it might have been this, or we think it might be that. I mean, there was no no semblance of any conclusion that they were going to talk about. Right, exactly. They passed it off as the St. Emma's fire, the always explainable phenomenon. phenomenon. Right, yes. right. So where does that? Um, I mean, where does that lead us with this stuff? I mean, well, it, you know, it's it's really just a. It leads us nowhere other than what it shows is that the phenomenon definitely predates Ken Arnold's sighting on Jan- oh, yeah. June 24th, 1947. Yeah, yeah. So this you should listen expect. to the Jean Follet episode. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, my God. Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah. That's, I mean, it's, it's, uh, uh, it, it, I mean, the war stuff is, is definitely interesting to me because, uh, at least on the German side of things, we're constantly barraged these days for some apparent unknown reason these days on the net. The German flying saucer German stuff flying saucer. is huge. Now, in but any there is, of there is looking, evidence that suggests that the Germans were, of course, twenty to twenty-five years more advanced than we were. Correct, ironically, yeah. right. And of course, after the war, engineers were coming forward saying we worked on these programs. Right. And so this is very compelling to mm-hmm. think. Well, how far did you get? <laughs> you know. How far? Well, that's just it. How far did they get? And of course, if you read books like Nick Redfern uh-huh. or some of the more, you know, backing the Nazi flying saucer theory, it could mm-hmm. well have been exploitation mm-hmm. of high advanced programs, which we know existed. Mm-hmm. And uh, was that what went down in Roswell? That's another big question. Right. Right. So, but but none of that can be answered if you're looking for documentation. You can just assemble the mass of information and make a plausible guess right. at, as a possible what could have happened. <clears throat> were the Germans actually talking about saucer-shaped stuff, disc-shaped stuff, or were they talking about rocket or uh, flying wing-type craft? I mean, was that... They're that talking was... about all circular aircraft. Really? Yes, and uh, there's a 1948 uh, document I have that was written to a general in the Pentagon mm-hmm. by a German engineer who stated he was working with a program... And because of he actually mentions uh, Roswell, he actually mentions that there is a uh, he feels that what is being seen over I guess the mid uh, Midwest during right. nineteen forty seven summer was indeed German technology, huh? And that was happening. But then again, you have the people who come forward and say, "Well, all that is is a German who's starving." who wants to get in to the United States through Project Paperclip and work for the government. Exactly, yeah. See, I had to balance all this. Yeah. But all I'm doing is looking at the military. I didn't look at the civilian end, which was a lot of stuff going on around the world. Right. Well, let me me ask you, uh, in terms of the documents, we see now with the WikiLeaks stuff, 
being yeah. scrutinized today that uh, a lot of these documents that, you know, at first glance, they sound incredible. And then you realize, oh, wait, these are cables that um, are either people's opinions or disinformation or something that, you know, was intended to reach as high a level of office as possible to stir things up. I mean, it's not all fact, in other words. Um, do your – the documents that you're looking at, I mean, are they all – factual like can you say these are based in fact as opposed to you know disinformation propaganda or even just opinion well the fact that i'm looking at world war ii documents helps my case in the fact that these are these are documents generated during the wartime and were and are not really phenomenon related what it is i'm piecing together are documents to indicate something very unconventional was taking place but it's not when we say UFO and flying saucer, the term ET comes into play whenever we mention these things. Sure. But this is not the case. So everyone was looking at the phenomenon through the eyes of secret technology. I'm convinced of that. Mm-hmm. But I do know that it was very important because, for instance, I uncovered a War Department file that was collecting these reports. And they were calling it rocket phenomena, flak phenomena. And they were keeping a tab on what was taking place, what was being reported. And it just shows to me that if there was something that was unconventional, and I, and I say this because of what the veterans are reporting, these are the ones out of the science fiction annals. These mm-hmm. are the cases you think, oh, my God, how could that not be in the report? Uh, but that is what is being kept secret that's not being released. But my documentation I uncovered indicate something was being seen. They were giving a name, whether it be balls of fire, the Foo Fighters, uh, rockets, jets, or balloons. You have to realize, again, that terminology, you'll see where a a pilot will say, I saw a jet at 30,000 feet, or I saw a light over uh, open area moving parallel with me or whatever. Yet that report is under phenomena. And if it was a jet or a rocket or something, they knew it was going to be something conventional like that. It would never enter that. So that shows confusion. So I know it's not a lot to, to hold on to in terms of convincing a skeptic. Right, yeah. What but about, doc- uh, is there anything that you can garner from the documents in terms of the reaction to these, uh, well, like, I don't know, craft objects, I don't know what you want to call them. Foo Fighters, um, you know, are they playful? Are they threatening? Do, any sort of thing that you can garner from their reaction to airplanes? Well, the, uh, in the report themselves, generally you see nothing but what they saw. You don't hear about any kind of a combat mission or engagement, even though they weren't being engaged. You don't see that in the report. And you have to realize, by the time the report was written, let's say the 415th Night Fighter Squadron, there was a sighting. Those guys would come back, tell their intelligence officer, who then would generate the raw intel. He would then condense that raw intel and send it up to the fighter wing. The fighter wing would then condense it to send it up to the bomb wing mm-hmm. and on and on till it reached Shafe. Now, that is important because where did that raw intel go and why did it generate anything of importance? And I saw there was concern. If you read the intelligence memoranda, you hear or you read where they're confused by it. And they're constantly trying to come up with an answer of what it might be. And usually it's rockets, yet they ask questions at the end. And they make fun of it. But 
another very important element of this is when the Foo Fighters story broke at General Eisenhower's office, which was the Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Force, mm-hmm. Schaefe, he had his scientific advisor investigate the phenomenon. And Schaefe was calling the phenomenon night phenomenon mm-hmm. in their reports. And I have this documentation. Night phenomenon. Night phenomenon. That's how he described it. And then they would go in and talk about the Foo Fighters. Hmm. And very generic. Could you look into us? Well, Eisenhower asked his chief scientific advisor to look into it. Now, interestingly enough, his chief scientific advisor was no other, and I have it in print, Dr. Robertson. Hmm. And Dr. Robertson, of course, led the 1953 Robertson panel. And that's why I feel that statement that you, about flying saucers are very significant. Yeah. And these are the little things I pieced together that show something taking place. But in the documentation itself, there's confusion within the upper echelon of the intelligence community, within the Army uh, Air Force. Not knowing what the hell it is. Not knowing what it is. But it doesn't read dramatically. It doesn't read, right. but it shows, it, it you know, there's questions and they're asking for investigations. And so not only do I have documentation about, uh, Dr. Robertson looking into it, right. but General Spatz, who was the commander of the Strategic Air Forces, had air technical intelligence operatives go look into it. And that's in the documentation. Huh. And that's very significant because the 415 Night Fighter Squadron were the unit who actually caused the stir, caused you know the big emphasis to look into these things. Right. But I'm not too sure that that's only because the press was was now nosing in. If that wouldn't have happened, we would not have seen seen this documentation as easily. Did you see any retribution documents that no. said these guys really caught hell for for talking about this to start with? I mean, for the press to get a hold of something like that. I mean, loose lips sink ships, right? I mean, this was the time when keep your damn mouth shut, let's make the bombs, let's you know, let's do the work and win this thing. I mean, it, it seems odd that Associated Press would get a hold of that kind of thing, and yeah, uh, and it would become a story at all. I mean, this well, is a wartime operation, yeah, and, wartime operation, and we don't know what it is. We don't know what it is. Talk and, about panic! And panic, I mean, panic, and it was by luck because the Associated Press. Bob Wilson was the actual reporter, mm-hmm. and he it was on December thirty first. Okay, to enter the new year, he was going to fly with the four fifteenth mm-hmm. over Germany to be the first war correspondent over Germany for the. 1945. Okay. Well, they were snowed. They were, the weather kept the aircraft down. Mm-hmm. So the guy said to him, hey, we've got a story for you because everyone in the unit had been seeing these things. The scientists were saying, oh, you guys don't know what you're talking about. Let us tell you what you're seeing. And they were really becoming upset over this. Okay. So he interviewed all the pilots and that's how the story broke. Huh. So then Schaefe, Eisenhower, Robertson are now on the case. But to me, it was only a if you look at it, it seems like a reaction that they had to do, but they were already on the case because the investigations were being conducted since we came on the scene in 42. Huh. So it's, wow. it, it, you had to look at it that way. Yeah. I mean, you said earlier that some of this stuff reads like science fiction, right? Give me a, an example of, of one that just borderlines the weird. Okay. <laughs> I mean, there's, well, I guess the, the one is most dramatic that we have drawings. We have the witness testimony mm-hmm. occurred over southern France in 1944. Okay. And this was reported personally to, of course, Dr. David Clark and Andy Roberts again. 
they were the ones who followed this particular case. Okay. Uh, a bomber crew were approaching, uh, coming home, and they were over France, and they, what they thought were four lights out in front of them. As they grew near, it was four windows or portholes to an object that was five times larger than their bomber, hanging motionless in the sky. Shit. Uh, they could see clearly as they got closer because it was cloudless sky, nice sky. And they heard nothing, and by the time they were close enough where they were really starting to panic, it shot straight in the air at what they estimated as 1,000 miles per hour. And according to them, they reported it to their intelligence officers. And these are the things that did not make it into the reports. That we, sounds like something that could be today. I that mean, could be today. That, that, you know, that's that, exactly that's today. completely consistent. Shooting straight up, motionless, right. huge. Cigar-shaped. I mean, yeah. Uh, circular. And, of course, flying saucer, the typical saucer shape. And yeah. all these are being reported, but they're not in the actual documentation. Huh. But there are the little, what I call, nuggets that, that you find indicate that right. something strange is reporting. And I'd like to bring up that the fact that the terminology, again, is very important. And they were saying things like, like an airship. And these were like silver cigar-shaped objects. And they were hovering and they were maneuvering in ways that defied the conventional wisdom of the day. And uh, they were being reported. Some of these were being reported. Right. But they said they used a conventional terminology. Okay. But you had to look th- between the lines and say, oh, but they said look like a Zeppelin. Oh. Instead of saying it was a Zeppelin. And that's right. how I had to – I was approaching and realized there's a lot to this. How about civilians during this time? I mean is there a lot of uh, – is there any mention in some of these documents or have you ever talked to anyone civilian-wise working at Fort Meade, working at uh, someplace overseas uh, as a civilian – Reporting, seeing something from the ground, like I mean, we're talking about, uh, I'm sure naval ships as mm-hmm. well, seeing naval these ship, things, yep. and and uh, bomber crews and bomber fighter crews. pilots and all of that. Right. How many times do you have the civilian on a base or the civilian uh, while something is like this is going on? Are they seeing these things as well? I mean, is this is is this ref- pretty much confined to the wartime? Uh, men and women who were who were working this job. I with mean, my research, but there yeah. were, you know, of course there were civilian sightings, but yeah. with my research, if I had to say there were on the ground, there were operators on the ground that the guys would call in and say, look, are you seeing this? Because strangely enough, some type of stealth, te- stealth technology was being utilized because they would look out their wingtips, see an object, mm-hmm. and they would report it to ground control intercept. And they say, we have nothing on the scopes here. Right. And in the aircraft, they wouldn't either. Yet they knew it was something physical. They felt it was physical. Mm-hmm. In some cases, they actually felt what may have been prop wash. They felt really? it physical. Uh, and then uh, some cases, they felt heat. And uh, these things were very close, and they tried to attack them. And w- one of the more dramatic things that happened with the 415th was they'd go into a, a tight attack. The thing would disappear. Hmm. And then appear behind them. And so it would go on like this as a cat and mouse game. Right. And that's what was starting to make them unnerved. Because the night fighter pilots were the cream of the crop. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there weren't that many of those guys. Right. And their vision was exceptional. Their observational skills. And of course they're flying by radar. So they're half crazy anyway. I mean, it, <laughs> that's a lot going on. They're just really good pilots. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Crazy is a good word. I mean, yeah. you know. But um, 
it sounds like today. It sounds like it's the same exactly thing like we're today. hearing now. It's exactly like today. I mean, I just watched a thing on History Channel the other night of pilot report sightings, and it's all very it's, – it all sounds very familiar to all of that. So it's like not a lot has changed. We now know it really did happen in World War II. Oh, more yeah. So than, yeah. Than um, and I think – well, at least as far as this show, I mean – Could you get much more anti-structural than war? I mean, <laughs> really? I mean, you can't get a whole lot more out of routine – uh, stressful, uh, that sort of thing for, for stuff like this to be seen. I mean, it, it just, I don't know. It, it's, uh, what fascinates me is that the, the Germans were seeing these kind of things. The Japanese were seeing these kind of things and thinking it's the enemies. Right. Why couldn't we have been smart enough to go, yeah, that's ours. And if you don't keep your ass out of the sky, we're going to waste well, you. Another thing I mean, <laughs> it's like, like really we could have, could we have done right. something there? Um, but, uh, you know, is there anything that you found of any of these things, number one, injuring any of these pilots? I mean, physical effects on the pilots themselves. Anything like that? And B, anything as far as things on the ground? I mean, did pilots see an object on the ground that was landed? Right. Uh, was there anything like that ever had come Nothing. up? I have one case that the pilot did feel, he and the co-pilot felt heat. Okay. From a craft that came up beside them and over them, it was brilliant in color and just mm-hmm. passed them by, and there was heat involved. Again, through skeptical eyes, was it a rocket? Right. Yet they were. Their testimony indicates that no, we were in areas that there were no rockets, there were no searchlights, there were no this, and that's why I wanted to really follow the military, right? Only because of the observational skills they had, and these guys, of course, you know. There were war nerves, but that's not the case here. Yeah. And by 1945, they knew what a V-1 was. They knew what the V-2 was. Right. They knew what an ME-262 was in flight. They knew how to combat those aircraft right. with prop aircraft because they knew the flight characteristics. This type of object that they were observing were very unconventional and were not anywhere near this. Hmm. Yet when the scientist and the memoranda tried to say, well, you were seeing a rocket, this is what was causing all the, who are they to tell us what we're seeing, you know, huh. type attitude. Now, you, you've interviewed actual, you've interviewed. Twelve of them, yes. What do you think has been the long-term effects on them? Personally. Personally I mean, yeah. their own personal view of everything. Did they remark to you that that's actually changed their worldview at all, or? Two, it changed our worldview. Really? The others felt that they were still, still dealing with German technology that today has not yet been revealed. Hmm. But they said they've seen nothing to indicate that what they saw has been replicated even today. Hmm. Uh, now, the other two, Leonard Stringfield and the commanding officer of the 415th, they both went on to believe that they were dealing with something extraterrestrial. Really? They felt that what they had seen was beyond the German technology of the day. Okay. And it had left a hell of a mark on them. Yeah. Leonard Stringfield got out of the Army Air Force as an intelligence officer in November 45. He never flew again after that event. He always took mass transit. Or <laughs> I'm not going up there again. So it, really, yeah. Yeah, it was an yeah. indelible mark on him. So, wow. And, of course, we know his history if you followed UFO history, right. what right. he contributed. Right, right. I mean, that's always been my my question is like how many how many guys like has this changed their life? I mean, or or what's been the long term effects 
of of an event like that. And you know, I guess you know, one of my last questions for you would be like, how close did some of these things get to the point of to the point of like serious danger of the craft or uh, I mean, how many guys at once? I mean, how many guys are we talking about on a on a big bomber as far as crew goes, seeing this kind of stuff? And when these things were engaged, what did they do besides disappear and reappear behind them or shoot away or anything like that? I mean, we've heard tell in, I guess, more modern accounts is that pilots have bared down these things with highly advanced aircraft that they did not have back in World War II. Right. And have fired through these things. Exactly. Is there any accounts like that in World War II where they actually put a lock, you know, a, a, a locked gun on these things yeah, and, two and pulled the trigger through them? There's a, yeah, in 1942, uh, pilot Ray Sabinski went on record um, in the 60s. And he was flying back from the Ruhr Valley. They had just conducted a bombing mission over mm-hmm. the industrial area. Mm-hmm. And they were out over Holland, and they, his rear gunner reported a what he thought was a rocket approaching their tail end. And Sabinski thought, well, rockets are new on the scene, so he wasn't too sure that's what it was. He thought it was a fighter for some reason with a, a searchlight. Hmm. They were saying that the Germans were putting searchlights on their aircraft. Okay. Ridiculous, if you ask me. Why would you travel in a combat situation with a searchlight? Right. So <laughs> Shoot me down. <laughs> right. The aircraft or object approached them. It was the size of a full moon by the time it reached them. Circular, copper-colored. At this point, Sabinsky panicked and put the bomber into a dive and, and tried to you know, get away. It mimicked everything. Not only that, it was able to go from one wing to the other with ease in these these tight uh, turns. And a, we're talking a spherical a thing, spherical or a object. spherical object the that's copper colored, full, full moon, copper colored. Huh. So he panicked in the terms of he he had his men open up. So he had two machine guns train their sights on it, which he knew it was now in range. They saw their tracer rounds going into the object, but not leaving the other side. So that's how they knew because it was uh, – they were that really unnerved them. So huh. when they got back, they reported it, and they were completely ridiculed. They were laughed at. And this is one of the cases where they thought they were drinking. Uh-huh. So Sabinsky asked other pilots who were coming in with the bombers coming behind and said, yeah, we saw something like that too, but we didn't report it. <laughs> and another thing is these guys were very serious-minded. Right, And once they realized that the objects were not attacking them or they were not an object that was going to explode, like many thought. Well, yeah. I mean, that's what you would think. They monitor it. They were leery of it, but they still follow through with their missions. And, of course, probably, you know, they were sending up photographic aircraft to get into the area. Huh. See, that's what I'm trying to find. The investigations. Oh, yeah. That'd be great. Yeah. I don't think you're going to get there. We're not going to get there. In my book, my documentation trail. Yeah. I only touched a tip of the iceberg. Wow. And to give you an idea, air intelligence reports, one batch that I uncovered uh, from 1942 to 1953, 1,500,000 documents still classified. Huh. That's just one batch. Right. And there's millions upon millions upon millions of documents there. And uh, I only scratched the surface. Not Hmm. only that, that's one archives. Right. I had, didn't hit the presidential archives. I didn't hit uh, 
Library of Congress. Right. There's so many other places to look around too. the world. What about Germany? And why yeah. are we getting this stuff out of Germany? Why are we not getting all we get out of Germany? Typically, from the researchers, it's German technology. Well, that's okay. But how do you explain having that technology in 1942 if you're struggling in 1945 with a jet aircraft uh, yeah. to win the war? There's you know? that, and I mean, there's. <laughs> Well, I can say from just trying to trace my family history that trying to get any kind of documentation out of Germany via World War II records destroyed, bombed out, lost. lost. I mean, I've tried numerous times to to find or out. Or it's here because we have a tremendous. Uh, or it's here. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, you look when the Russians rolled into Berlin. I mean, I don't think that they were, you know, worried about saving a lot of stuff. Uh, I well, think. What, what about going to Britain? Yeah, yeah. The UK. To, yeah, talked to Nick Pope. Yeah, yeah. I talked to Nick uh, very briefly. He he helped lead me towards some documentation, which I was already aware of, and uh, but he was really wasn't that versed on that particular subject at the time. I contacted him. Uh, also, Nick Redfern. I you know contacted him, and that's how I started to find out about Dr. David Clark and Andy Roberts' work. Uh-huh. And Andy Roberts was doing a lot of essential food fighter research in uh, Britain before I ever was. Oh, okay. Um, but I don't think he continued. And that documentation, you know, really the British documentation is a real mystery to me because they claim that 90% of their, their material was destroyed of their World War II records. Huh. It's like an amazing amount of material was destroyed. And I'm like, I don't understand that. Uh, but the newest uh, release... Of UFO documents that came out, there was a Churchill, Eisenhower uh, situation where okay. what it was, the um, a bodyguard for Churchill with the Royal Air Force overheard he and Eisenhower speak about the UFOs. Not that particular term, but they were worried about it and concerned by what it, it might do or conflict with religion. It, it was that much of an impact. Huh. However... What was released to the public were the grandson's notes or FOIAs to the government and their response to him about his grandfather. Once again, it was just the fluff, not the intel or the reports that were generated if that indeed was a, a real case. Right. So we have to be careful of that. They're very good at releasing a lot of documents, but a lot of it's not really not meaningful enough to make a big it's deal. It's important and, and inf- informative and well, I mean, I guess when you stand back and you've collected so much of it, I mean, certainly you say, well, there's obviously something going on here. Yeah, yeah. But it does, none of it seems to conclusively point to anything no. for you one way or the other. Right. Um, I, I, I mean, the, the, the big question is, for me, uh, how, how much of the documentation – this could get tricky. Okay. How much of the documentation do you believe is – genuine and how much of it do you believe might have been i don't know may have been generated in order to confuse the issue that this is what's going to be turned over to the public do you think any of this documentation that may be coming out that you're getting could be concocted in order to throw monkey wrenches into this whole procedure of somebody like you looking into this i mean how far does that go how far could you take that sort of notion Looking at the documentation from 1939 to 45, generated in those years, mm-hmm. some of that documentation, 
I, I think I was the first to look at it in some cases because you'd open the box and you, it was as if they just boxed it, you know, after the war. Yeah. And I'm the first to look at it. That particular documentation was not with the mindset of the public in mind because no one ever thought the public would ever have access. Right, ever get to it. So what we're seeing with this documentation is sanitized reports. Mm-hmm. Reports that have to be, remain compartmentalized because if it gets across a desk of a low echelon unit who have no business with that. Right. And that's the way they did things during the war. It was all compartmentalized. Oh, case, yeah. I think it's know, still that way to a large it's degree. It's still that way there. Compartmentalized so. keeps everything protected. Nobody knows the whole story one way or the other. But I'm um, convinced what I've uncovered and what is out there now is definitely original and authentic. Well, and also talking to the pilots personally, I mean, that, that had to be a pretty big thrill, actually. I mean, that yeah, would be for me, yeah. you know, to talk to guys like that. I mean, that yeah. that's living history to be able to talk to them. And for them to be telling you, yeah, we saw those things, and yes, here's what happened, and this, that, and the right. other. We couldn't explain what it was, yeah. but it clearly wasn't technology that we think should have been in use right. at the time or even have been conceived of. And it would unnerve them if it was German technology. That really scared them because – We're in deep shit. We're in deep shit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. That was really something. And they were really – it's just like today. They were being ridiculed – not ridiculed, but challenged by the science – scientific community who were over in the states armchair researchers are yeah. saying well here's what you saw and you know they were saying it was you know some type of a flak object that could attract a, a large metal object and follow you around like a cat you know dog chasing his tail and some type of thing like <laughs> what? that to, yeah to bring attention to the aircraft as you can see the answers have gotten no better in today's world <laughs> Well, let me ask you, um, the earliest documents, um, does the verbiage lead you to believe that in those earliest documents, that's the first time the military had ever heard of this phenomenon? Or does it strike you that that it, you could maybe find stuff from World War One? Well, there's probably World War One, which is a lot less available. I've heard of, through Project 1947, uh, Jan Aldridge has posted some material. And you'll see material in other books about World War One. But I don't think there's documentation, good documentation. I think it's reports about the documentation that exists. Mm. Are um, there Navy reports? Yes, there are Navy reports. But that is not uh, – I don't know what to say about this, but the Navy are probably the most difficult armed service to get out any kind of information, especially on a UFO phenomenon. But within the Navy, the reports themselves all are coming from the veterans. I've, huh. I've never seen the actual documentation, but I have to admit, I, would, I did not explore the naval records t- to any degree that I should have because they just were all over the place uh, and then not really at the National Archives. Some of the stuff is at the shipyards and right. different archives. But like I said, my, my research was generally based on the Royal Air Force and the Army Air Force. Okay. But I researched the Office of Scientific Research and Development records, a lot of records. And over the course of four years, I'd say 95% of my time was just looking through things that had no relevance whatsoever. Hmm. And uh, a lot of weeding out. A lot of weeding out. You get a lot of, um, like Stan Friedman loves to hold up the completely blacked out document with just one or two words. Do you get anything like that? Never saw one like that at all. And that's what's so important about the document that um, uh, Clark uncovered because they're talking about that, yes, indeed, they're being told something very strange by the pilots. Yet, 
they the pilots won't won't fall back. They're going to stay firm to their story no matter what. And that could have been easily taken out. But I think that's one of the documents that actually escaped and made it into the public domain. And you know, a nice find to help this research. Right. You know, it's funny because they. It seems like every few years now, you know, Hillary Clinton ends up apologizing for something like MK Ultra. Um, (laughs) so I I wonder why it is that, that stuff that is that sensitive and that horrific, um, you know, can come out and can be apologized for, and we can get the documents on it, but not Foo Fighters. That is a strange question because they're really, they're not that dramatic in the sense that what national security threat could could be taken from such a sighting? What was it other than? Especially not when we were the aggressors. Yeah. Most of the time of these things. Other than if we're looking at it, that it indeed was German technology that we were exploiting or our own technology that was, we were testing on who knows what, but there's that whole camp, that whole research vein that says that, you know, the technology that we were uncovering out of Germany was really dramatic. And to this day, we don't know the full story. Hmm. And that's another large element in my book. I follow the air technical intelligence teams coming in at D-Day from there on in. And their point was to get in, find everything they could, scientists, engineers, the documentation, the laboratories. And uh, this was a very important project. And what was the most important intelligence project of the war on our side was what they call the ALSOS mission. And that was the hunt for the German atomic bomb. And General Leslie Groves was in charge of the operational aspect of this. We sent in a team in Sicily, and then it went into Italy, and then it went in on the beaches of D-Day. And they wanted to find out if Germany had a bomb, because we did not know, even as we entered Germany, that they didn't have a bomb. And that was a very, very stressful moment. When we uh, hit the beaches of D-Day... General Eisenhower sent in people with Geiger counters onto the beaches with the first waves because he thought he had intelligence that the V1s were going to be directed onto the beaches with dirty bomb, as dirty bombs. Oh. And that would have really ruined the whole invasion. Yet oh, yeah, it didn't happen. Right. So, but they were still worried. So there was that real risk. Now, leading that, the scientific officer leading the ALSOS mission was Dr. Samuel Goudsmith. Now, I must point this out again because he was also sitting on the Robertson panel. And he generated reports. They're looking for the atomic bomb, so he's generating reports on stratospheric aircraft. He's generating reports on all types of high advanced types of aeronautical situations. Right. And the reason is, if Germany has something like that, and they did have a bomb, it would alter the state of the war. So that was a dramatic thing for them to know. Right. And they didn't know all the way into Germany what, what they were going to encounter as a last-ditch effort. Huh. And so with these aircraft, if you look at it from a day-to-day, it seemed like it could very well be German, except for this certain percentage of these high sci-fi type of uh, sightings. Yeah. Everything else could be like, yeah, that could be stealth technology. Yes, that could be a Delta-shaped wing aircraft that they were experimenting with. Right, right. And... Uh, so you look at it that way, but when you look at the big picture and the fact that it was seen throughout the war, it doesn't make sense. On every side. Yeah, and so it's not adding up. Well, one of the things that uh, 
Jacques new book, Wonders in the Sky, uh, does. It, it, well, first of all, it, it goes from antiquity on up to the point where we have flight. So it doesn't cover anything beyond when we get flight. And one of the patterns that you see um, at wartime are people seeing battles played out in the sky. Do you get any reports like that when, when you talk about sort of the, the weirder, uh, more sci-fi things? I mean, are, are dogfighters up there actually seeing dogfights playing out like some sort of hallucinogenic mur- mural or something? No, that's very interesting. Like that? No, I've never uncovered that. That's When we go to Dr. Jacques Vallée, which I highly admire, that's absolutely a fascinating subject, but it seems to be that most everything I was encountering or recover, uncovering was all nuts and bolts. Uh-huh. Uh, we, I didn't see anything even broached the topic of something that eccentric. Um, and I never heard it from the pilots either. Hmm. So that, I'm curious about that. But I think Dr. Vallée was the one who said that he would be very disappointed if it turned out that UFOs were a nuts and bolts situation. Yeah, yeah. And, he ain't the only one. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and I remember reading that when he wrote his trilogy. I think it was in mm-hmm. his trilogy he wrote that. Yeah. Or it was in that period, yeah. And I was yeah. completely – that turned me yeah. to being more broad-minded. And I realized, yes, it's a manifestation of a phenomenon that seems to be approaching – in the same technological advance as we are. Right. It's all, but that, you know, is a, is a great hypothesis that I am definitely up to also. Yeah. How but, ma- well, how many of the pilots that you talked to, did any of them say anything along the lines of, uh, I guess along the lines of something like, this was weird beyond all imagination because this day is when this happened and I did this or we were doing this thing. And was it so random of a day for them when this occurrence took place? Uh, or was it, uh, I mean, did they give you any kind of like backstory that led up to the sighting or something like, I mean, I, I keep, I keep thinking of, uh, things that we've talked about on this show before where it's a uh it's not a routine day it's not a routine uh run it's not a routine patrol um you know we lost our tail gunner this day and all of a sudden this thing showed up or we had this happen in the unit and then this event happened do you get any of that sort of thing or or was that not in the criteria of what you were asking about well i didn't think to ask that but it was never a situation where i felt like i needed to ask that question either because these were typically they were running missions uh the 415th particularly mm-hmm. uh they were running missions during the time of the battle of the bulge mm-hmm. so they were going out on combat missions it was usually coming to the area or leaving is when they were experiencing a lot of this stuff okay so they were everything was combat minded right. when they were in the air they had one thing to think about completing a mission and getting back on the ground right right and that was pretty much so their personal thoughts and beliefs were out the window they were just there to observe find out what it was and again, they're high, highly trained observers in terms of one of the guys was actually reprimanded because he almost fired on a house. And this is a night fighter pilot from a, what found out to be a woman reading by candlelight. That's how well he could see. Jesus. And so, <laughs> and he was the very first one who saw him in, in, uh, in November, late November, early December, 44. And uh, everyone in the unit. So then finally they're going up and they're saying, yeah, we're seeing them too. We're seeing it too. But 
they can't really think much about it other than is it going to be aggressive? Right. Is it the enemy? Do we have to worry about it? Those were the three things that were always in their heads. And right. I always heard, but never like, oh, you know, I didn't have a lot of sleep today. or It, it wasn't anything like that. How many of these guys, because this is something that's come up in more recent times, I would say, that uh, the pilot, the co-pilot, the bombardier, the tail gunner, hears a noise from this object. Is there any sounds associated across the board reported with World War II objects and up to and including them hearing voices? Because this is reported in some cases with airlines. Right. I mean, completely. I I uncovered none. They never mentioned it. Typically, it was all silent. All silent. And that's what really mystified me because there was one ground report Uh where along the Autobahn, a infantry unit were embanked off the side of the road. And they saw, it was foggy, they saw five to six lights come up the Audubon, three or four feet in diameter, completely silent. And at first they thought they were rockets, but they said, well, how could they travel that slowly, be silent, and then make a turn, and then just disappear into the distance. And that was the first ground-sided Foo Fighter in that period of time. Okay. No sound. And... uh the only thing that I uncovered once was the heat involved. The heat was the only the heat, was yeah. really the only the tangent only thing. Yeah, mm. which is just very strange, you know. And of course, in the Pacific Theater of Operations, they called them balls of fire because the the way they were illuminated consistently. Right. So you would think that, and they got close. They shot some down. So in amongst this phenomenon, were really conventional weapons that okay. the Japanese were throwing up there. So they had rockets. They had these advanced flares. They had all kinds of stuff being dropped from aircraft onto the bomber formations. Right. That's what's absurd to me about the explanation by some of the scientists is, what do you think? These guys don't know what they're fighting? Right. And that's the most absurd thing to me. It's just like, it's the same absurd answer that you get out of today's world as far as dismissing this kind of stuff. It's just like, you didn't see what you think you saw. Right. Um, uh, Did you come across any that you could explain today and say, oh, now we know what that was, or we know what that is. Like any particular instance of a sighting that was documented by the military or military guys, whether it be naval, ground, or air, that you now look at and go, that was likely a copper meteor, that was likely this or that, or that was maybe lumped yeah. in with those reports, you know? Right. Well, no one has done research on the sighting per se to follow up on right. the 60 some year old sightings. Yeah. Uh, some of the. Uh, I mean, anything obvious to you? I mean, that, that just seems like, well, I don't know if that would roll. Like, oh. Well, I guess I should be asking is, what was your criteria for inclusion of okay. a report? Well, I never drew any. Okay. One in the book. And when I looked at it and I saw it, what appeared to be flares, they would say it was flares, even though it was under the term phenomenon. Mm-hmm. It was such a situation where they were over the area and something's launched from the water. It has to be. It must be a flare and it stays there and, okay. it, and it goes away. Right. Why they kept it in a category of phenomena is unknown. So mm-hmm. the only thing I could say was, oh, am I looking at another sanitized version of a report that I don't know the full story? Okay. But to look at it as on the page, I saw it was clear. It was clear that they were just lumping a lot of stuff in there. Huh. And that was the thing about the World War II sightings. I had to discern, were they talking about a jet or were they talking about something else? Yeah. And I uncovered situation where how could they have a jet night fighter by the hundreds 
or in a, that were operating over a large geographical area, mm-hmm. when Germany itself, there were very few, if any, knife fighters in operation, and they were usually stationed around Berlin at the final stages of the war. Okay. So then I thought, okay, that was likely not a jet, because jets weren't flying over France or Belgium yeah. in that type that time frame. It's got to be an incredibly hard thing to research. I mean, it is. It's When you're talking about that, I mean, how do you include a report of, a light or I mean unless you've got that dramatic interaction with the plane yeah. itself right uh, the, the 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 copper ball is fascinating to me that it actually absorbed fire fire you right. know, I mean the, the the shot directly at it and it absorbs it nothing comes out the back no effect whatsoever now I interesting mean, enough that particular sighting the, the Battle of Los Angeles in 1942 February 42 which was the same year as that sighting mm-hmm. they have that famous photograph I don't know if Bruce McAbee has I thought he had analyzed this where in the cross beams of the searchlights, they have that object. And it, it, it appears to be some type of sh- disc-shaped object right. there. And according to the ground witnesses, that it was taking fire. They were hitting this thing, or they thought they were hitting it. Yeah. And, Hell of uh, a lot of rounds thrown up there, too. Right, 1,400 rounds. <laughs> yeah. Jeff, is that a real photo? Uh, of the Battle of L.A.? Yeah. Um. How the hell would I know? I mean, I, I mean, honestly, I mean, it's like. I mean, did it look, come from back then? Do we know that this is actually? Uh, oh Times. yeah! Oh yeah! Los oh, Angeles yeah. Times printed that that picture. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's well dated. Yeah, that's that's for sure. What it is, I mean, yeah. there's there's a lot of people drawing a lot of conclusions out of that. Right. I mean, I've seen a lot of people, not Bruce, but I've seen a lot of people try to make out uh, the shape yeah, of dish- what you kind of see in that fire, smoke, right. exploding bombs. They almost, at least one, at one point, I remember, I don't know, probably 10, 12 years ago, somebody was messing around with Photoshop or one of the early inclusions of that and picked out that this thing was very similar to the discs that is on the cover of Timothy's Goods Above Top Secret. Oh, I did not hear that story. Where it's got a really tiny little canopy on top and then it's this shape. Okay. And and I thought, well, that's a little weird, and yeah. and that kind of struck me uh, odd at that. But but when yeah. you, the the bad part about that photograph to me is there's no way to judge elevation. There's no way to judge size in that picture to me. It's it's really it's a tough one it's to call. One to call. As I say, what the hell is it? Are right. we seeing a matrixing effect of you know the photograph right. with all of these things going up? The smoke, the that search was over Los on. Angeles, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. So why is that not a bigger deal? Why are there not a whole bunch of stories of people who witnessed that? There are. I mean, yeah. why, I mean, like to to the Roswell extent. Like, why is it not a huge deal that this happened? I one. I mean, there were houses destroyed in that. Yeah, people uh, had heart attacks. Yeah, I there mean, were deaths. There were there were houses destroyed by shell. What know? was it attributed yeah, to right. at the time? Do you do you know? What's that? What was it attributed to at the time? Did we do, At the I mean, time, well, the, the military testimony, which is, is on record, and, uh-huh. and people there, they were seeing a variety of things, which is, which is amazing. They were seeing everything from a dot in the sky, triangle formation, multiple aircraft. They were hearing prop airplanes. They were seeing balloons. It was just like everything else. Yet the only thing we know is that that one report that General Marshall sent to Roosevelt uh-huh. talking about that you know, particular battle – and the testimony on the ground indicated there was something flying over. It was typically silent, but they could not come to the conclusion on how many it was. Right. Now, interestingly enough, if I understand this right, 
on the Pacific coast, at that particular time, there were only five fighter aircraft available to us. When that happened, they didn't launch them because they didn't know if it was a first strike or some type of uh, diversionary tactic by the Japanese. Because the night before, a Jap sub was fi- had fired several rounds onto an oil refinery there in L.A. Huh. And so the Japs were off the coast of all the way down the Pacific coast. So there was a real war nerve situation going on. And the fact that they thought for sure that it was real, a real aircraft, that was not misconstrued. But why the numbers? Why the formations? Why the different sizes? Moving in zigzag formations. This military. Interesting that you're hearing prop planes, too. I mean, that's like. It's like a real circus up there. It's like, you know, everything's up there. So. I'm confused by it, and I haven't really gone into just looking into that event. I don't know. I mean, when I first heard about that, the first thing I thought was war nerves. You know, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, you go to Ocean City. Look at the, look at the the uh, tower still standing on Ocean City, Maryland beaches, right. uh, to, for for spotting stuff. I mean, it, it's obvious you know, that 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 uh, I mean, and, and talking to my my grandparents and all. I mean, you can get the real sense. Yeah, we were. I said, were you worried about? It coming here, I mean, was that like a real fear? Was it like, this is so far away, we'll take care? No, they were seriously terrified. Yes. This shit is coming on this soil. That yes. was like the hugest thing on everyone's mind. It was. And we have to remember that the before the searchlights came on, before anything happened, this was picked up on radar, coastal radar. Right. There was something coming in from the ocean. Yeah. They just couldn't identify it. And so obviously, what was it? It was Japanese. But then yeah. when it showed up and did that, and now, nothing happened. Was it stationary? Because I don't remember. Was that was the object they were firing on for such an extended period of time? Was it moving in motion, or was it in one spot and they just shelled the hell out of that particular quadrant of, I'm of not space? Sure on that point. That's a good point. I'm not sure. I think that well, with the testimony, the things were moving in all kinds of fashions, and uh, I believe there were situations where there were stationary okay sightings. Right. Again, the panic factor is involved, and people yeah. are ducking for cover. And yeah, yeah. I just remember hearing about homes being demolished by yeah. you know falling debris of all these shells entering the air. I mean, that stuff's got to come down somewhere. Right. Um, but uh, I mean, obviously, I I don't know. I, I don't see nothing was there. And it was all war nerves. I don't say that there was mm-hmm. definitely something there. Right. Um, uh, but what you mentioned about hearing all of the different – there was all sorts of different sightings of all sorts of different things, yes. all sorts of different sounds. That's just uh, – well, Many people believe it's a psychological warfare exercise. Really? Yeah. I mean every everything – every sighting you can pretty much counter with another plausible scenario within reason, except for the more extraordinary. Like I said, it took off for 1,000 miles an hour. It was huge. Hope. Yeah. I mean that's pretty – you ain't, you ain't it is, it is not. Couldn't right. we also go with the valet thing of, well, there was your theater in the sky? Well, there you go. I that mean, everybody could... saw some different thing. Yeah. I mean, that's, object. that's it's the circus. That you is, know? That's it's... absolutely right. I'm very open to that. That's a very good point. And, uh, huh. but you don't see that addressed too often because right. the thing is, what's supporting the psychological warfare exercise is in a lot of people's minds, is that memo generated by Marshall. You don't generate a, a memo to the president unless you have some pretty solid facts. It okay. just it didn't happen. It just right. doesn't happen that way. And, yeah. Uh, so that suggests that whatever his men were seeing, whatever caused him to fire at these things, was a manifestation that seemed real. Right. 
Now, if if the phenomenon is doing that, how are we going to know that? How are we going to know? <laughs> yeah. But to look at it in the terms of the wartime and just nuts and bolts, is that's all I can look at it is nuts and bolts. Right, right. Wow. Is there I mean, any uh, escalation of or or evolution that you can I, – I know that these are sanitized documents, but anything at all that through the years of documents something changes, either the way we interact with this stuff or the way that this stuff interacts with us? Is there any sort of inkling of that? Not, not with the military reports. I mean some of the better military reports all the way into the 50s and 60s um, – and I feel horrible because I haven't visited the cases a long time. But where you have ground observations, you have radar observations, and you have the airmen reporting and seeing the objects, these are disc shape or whatever, it's all nuts and bolts, and it's treated like that. So I don't – that seems to be all the way through right. with the military sightings. And then they, there's more extraordinary – Well, nuts and bolts, but I mean nuts and – but even in terms of nuts and bolts where, you know, maybe – Originally, we're just seeing these things. They're like off in the distance. And then the, the more you, documents you read, maybe the closer the objects are even getting to our craft. Is there any evolution just in terms of that? Or, you know, when we start firing upon them, that wasn't an initial reaction that we had, right? That was some time later, I assume? No, they were thinking firing on them immediately, but they were only concerned, if we're talking about World War II... Mm-hmm. Uh, we're only, they were concerned that these objects would explode, and that was the reason that they were there, to bring down the aircraft. They were a device that was tracking our aircraft. They were uh, a remote control device, maybe, some uh-huh. kind of rocket that, once fired upon, would explode, and that's when the aircraft would be brought down. Well, what about just in terms of distance? Could, could you even make a, a case that, that they were f- further away uh, when we first started seeing them, and they sort of inched closer to us? It doesn't appear that way. It, it appears that whenever these things were encountered, they typically got close, uh, especially with the Foo Fighters. Hmm. Uh, typically, you hear off the wingtip, very close, or at a distance moving closer to them. And what really surprised them was they never saw them drop from the sky thinking, oh, it's an aircraft that dropped some type of rocket or some type of flare, or it was ground launched and it's coming after us. It would just appear. Hmm. And that's one of the things that they noticed. And typically, they would appear at a distance and move closer. But there were instances where they were just right in front of them or just right there. Out of nowhere. Out of nowhere. And then disappear in the same fashion. Again, I've touched on such a small amount of reports and information. It's not fair for me to, to tell you or your listeners that anything can be judged from my book or my research other than it needs to be expanded upon. Right, because there probably are cases that I can't speak about because they're there and we haven't uncovered them. All right, and it's not because they're hidden; it's because there's so much to go through. To go through, and who's doing it? No one's doing it. Are right. there cases um, where the observation is backed up by radar, so that uh, if a pilot sees something and it, it appears, it just appears to be there, and then blinks off? Will that be reflected on radar, or will radar pick it up actually moving off? During the war year, well, during the war years, the the, uh, the Army Air Force reports indicate that typically the reports were not showing up on radar. Okay. What we're finding about the witness reports with the Navy, they were appearing on radar and coming in, and that's when they realized what the ships that they were something 
unconventional. At first, they thought they were Japanese aircraft attacking the, the fl- uh, fleet. Were they using completely different radar from other branches? Well, I'm, I think there's several types. There's ground intercept. Okay. And then there's, of course, the radar. I think that's all typical. There, there must be a dozen different types of right. radar s- scenarios. Mm-hmm. But what the Navy was using, I don't know the technical Right. Yeah, but however, Dr. Out. Griggs was a radar expert. Uh-huh. And that's why he was able to go into the Pacific Theater and the European Theater of Operations and determine what's going on. Is there something wrong with the equipment? That was the first thing they did. Mm. And there were what they call, I think, phantom echoes and things like that. It turned out to be birds, flock of birds. Temperature so inversions. All and kinds of things like that. Yeah. But amongst that, just like everything else, there was a phenomenon yeah. that appeared that that was being reported, but it's not the documentation. So here again, it's witness testimony, and I don't know where you guys stand with that, but does that stand to be a complete shut and closed case because the witnesses said they saw what they saw in terms of, you know, where do you guys stand with that? With witness testimony? Yeah, I mean, we have, I have the highest respect for military observations in terms of the uh, I, 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 And this has come up. You know, not too awfully long ago, I think on our message board or somewhere that, you know, I kind of look at it and I go, well, I think it was applying to airplane pilots. Like, are airplane pilots better observers than Joe Schmo on the street? I would say, yeah, to a degree. But then again, we're all made of the same stuff. We all are using human perception to perceive what we're – I think, you know, in terms of being – there's still a wow factor to this. I mean, that's the big thing to me. I don't care if you're an airplane pilot or you're you and I. Uh, mm-hmm. And there's still a sense of, of what the fuck yeah, <laughs> when yeah. these things show up. Yeah, exactly. And I think no one is beyond reproach of that. Um, and so are they better observers? I think that there's still a, a, a panic. I think that there's still bewilderment. I think there's all of those emotions that are into that. Um, I, I think... I would say slightly better. Uh, I, I would. I would consider a pilot. Yeah, I would say at least at that point, a pilot would know what he's looking at. I would say he's versed enough and trained well enough to say mm, that's not a flock of birds. I don't know what that is. And and nowadays, I'm sure they're familiar with mylar balloons and weather balloons and all sorts of crap that's floating around uh, uh, up in the air. Uh, so they're certainly going to be able to to negate or verify what that is based on observation alone, as opposed to Joe Blow on the street, he would look up and go, it's a flying saucer when it's a weather balloon. I see the point there. You know, World War II pilots, I mean, heavily trained. I mean, there's, you know, but I again say one thing is like heavily trained, but quickly trained because we didn't have a lot of time. War doesn't afford you the luxury of time. So you've got to get guys in, get them trained, and get them out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, and certainly the, the level of stress somebody's under like that. Um, All factors. Absolutely. I mean, and, and I can't imagine. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't want to go into a ground war. I'll, I'll do it on Xbox. Don't get me wrong. I'll be the first one <laughs> through the gate on Xbox, okay? I'm talking, this is another thing that people, it's very hard for them to put themselves in that kind of position to say, you watch the movies of D-Day, and I go, what the hell? What what must have been going through somebody's head? I'm in this boat, and when that door opens, i got to run. 
I gotta run at guns. And hearing what? The bullets hit the door. And they're guys are puking all around you. I mean, it's like that's real life. And and I I still maintain, just like the guys over overseas today, those guys are equal heroes to me across the board. At some point in aircraft, if you see a strange optic, the first thing I'm thinking of is who's shooting at me. But when it's off the wingtip and it's and it's copper colored and it's a sphere, then I'm gonna I'm gonna freak. I'm gonna freak. Well, and it wasn't it wasn't often a mission that 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 they were on. You said right, right. right. Um, So I don't know. But your question was your question just more along the lines of just generally, do we trust witness testimony as opposed to people who need to see something on film uh, or see it with their own eyes? Well, I'm just saying with the witness testimony, what comes up short is we don't have a lot of other variables. We don't have the documentation to support that. We don't have everything. So again, the more dramatic cases that I've uncovered. I only have the witness testimony, right. and, and that's not enough in terms of to state exactly what it was. That's where we're lacking here. Well, I would think that you know, war is a weird situation, and so when you're in a weird situation, for something to trump that, <laughs> it'd be, it'd be <laughs> yeah, weirder. <laughs> I'm going to trust that more, probably more than not. You know. Well, I agree with you, and I personally, you know, I when I heard. Leonard Stringfield tell me about his daytime sighting. Now, that's one of the few daytime, uh, the only daytime sighting I know of during the war. Mm-hmm. And that was dramatic enough for him to alter his whole life, right. to devote to research. And he was an air intelligence officer with the 5th Air Force. Yeah. That says a lot. And when I heard his testimony, I had no reason to doubt it. And I knew when he was describing it, he was asking the same questions. But he was there at a time where he knew what the intelligence memorandum was telling him was in the air. Now, what's even more important is the war was over mm-hmm. when he saw this. So we had air superiority when he had his encounter. Right. And not only that, there were problems with his aircraft that almost made it crash because what he thinks the objects did to it. Oh, okay. So it's, it was pretty dramatic. And then we see hear that. So I have no reason to doubt the veterans words. Huh? And because of what they know and what their background was, I tend to believe that if they're going to tell me they believe it was beyond conventional wisdom or means. That's good enough for you. It's good enough for me at this point, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that's out of it. Unless you guys, we bring in the theory, like you said, it was something that manifested as a game. Well, I mean, for me, the question, that's why I asked, like, how did it affect the pilot's life? How were they impacted by that? And, I, and I, here's a question for you. On the other side of the fence, let's say the German side, mm-hmm. did their reports vary in aggressiveness? In other words, were the Foo Fighters aggressive with their pilots uh, as opposed to not being aggressive with our own? Uh, what, like, I'm asking, did they pick a side? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean. Yeah, I don't know because it's, the documentation, I have not seen any documentation from the German side. Or the Japanese. Or the Japanese, and very few reports. I mean, mm. again, the language barrier, if it's out there, if it's being reported in the press in Germany, doesn't make it to the States. And I find sometimes it's surprising what doesn't, you know, a book is released in uh, England, sometimes not here in the States, and you don't even hear about it, even right. though it's something pertinent. Right. It's really so in a different language. Huh. So no one... I, I know has been really researching World War II as that element of it. 
other than their, everything I hear from Germany, it's German technology. Hmm. That's what the pro, the most that I hear coming out. Hmm. It's curious. I mean, I, I, you just wonder. I mean, like what? I mean, we're always trying to figure out the what and and, yeah. and the why. And the why is not a productive question to ask, as we say all the time on the show. But, um, you know, like what? I mean, your opinion. I mean, just you could be free with your opinion. Yeah. What do you think? What the hell do you think the purpose of them being there was? What? What? I mean, just your own guess. Like when you think about the situation, what was going on? These pilots, they're flying. They see this thing. What's the reason for it? I oh, mean, man, it's, it's, I mean, how deep does that get? It's <laughs> deep. And I mean, I could come up with half a dozen scenarios of what it might. Observation. Be. Uh, Observation seems to be the one that I lean towards. If it indeed is, if we're using the extraterrestrial hypothesis, right. And we're in a more nuts and bolts fashion. Mm-hmm. And when I say nuts and bolts, it doesn't mean that the strange phenomena associated with that, you know, that would appear to be metaphysical or anything like that. Why can't it be all of that? Right. Um, it appears to be a monitoring situation. Because what else? Why wasn't it, you know, attacking? Why was it? And same today, why is it always around, but it really isn't in an aggressive manner? Yeah. Um, Although, on the other hand, if it's always been there, uh, then we were sort of invading its turf the second we took flight. So maybe it's not monitoring so much as it's just there. <laughs> right. It's just there. We just bump Perhaps. into it anytime we go to the skies. Yeah. That a lot of the older researchers from like the 50s, Leonard Stringfield, Raymond Fowler, uh-huh. uh, that generation believe that the atomic testing brought whatever it is here. But that's before they realized that how much was being observed yeah. prior to that. And let me let me ask you, uh, did any of the pilots that you've spoken to, have they had any further experiences? No. Unfortunately, everyone I, I in my book has passed on. Uh. And they never had any other sightings. Uh, even Len Stringfield, who mm. devoted his life to research, I don't think he had another sighting. Huh. And uh, uh, Harold Augsburger, who was commanding officer of the 415th, uh, he, he died last year. And he, he just, just was amazed because he would follow the subject on the History Channel. Oh, wow. And uh, he said, well, that's not what I saw. or That couldn't have been German. So he was just completely dead set against that. They were dealing with something that was the Axis forces. Right, right. I mean, that's the unfortunate right. part about all of these is that pretty soon all the documents, that's all we're going to have left because these people are leaving us at – an alarming rate yeah. these days. I mean, I think I heard it. Ter- I think sixteen hundred a day. Yeah, something's that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. Uh, I mean, not too long ago, uh, which I couldn't believe, the last survivor of uh, uh, Passchendaele passed away. Can you believe that? Wow. Yeah. What? I mean, really? Yeah. Can you imagine World War One, the muddiest, bloodiest battle in World War One? He just passed away, I didn't know like that. not too long ago. The last. The last soldier from that battle—that's amazing to me. It is, and to think of World War II. I mean, it's yeah. you know, I I know probably a handful of World War II veterans, and most of them uh, that I can think of at this point have passed away. Um, yeah, it's it's a lot. I mean, so I mean, it, unfortunately, I think if we're going to study the Japanese side of thing, we're running out of time, like mondo quick. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, I think the biggest problem with studying all that would be the the, the lingual problem, <laughs> the language problem. Exactly. I mean, how do you call it? Hello, Japan. Uh, 
What do you guys got on World War II flying saucers? Well, don't they have a ufology over there? They do. But I don't, you know, the dialogue between, you know, what about abduction research in Germany? Mm-hmm. Do you know any abduction researchers in Germany? Or I, maybe you do. Uh, um, but the fact is, who's... Just Himmler. Backing Hi, everybody. <laughs> okay. Uh, who's backing it? Who's supporting it? And how much emphasis and money is being devoted? Because hundreds, you could spend the rest of your life just... I could spend every single hour of my day for the rest of my life and still not see all the records there that they'll let me see. Right. Right. And there is a tremendous trove of records still not for public consumption. Yeah. Well, here's the, here's the $10 billion question before we got on the air. I told you about my little, Mm -hmm. uh, encounter with some people who didn't like what I was doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, have you ever had anything like that? Like you're poking around where you don't belong or keep your mouth shut or anything like that? I mean, this is not something we often talk about on this show. Right. But. Nothing that, that intense. So I consider that an intense engagement. Right. There. The closest thing I had was when I was conducting research right around the time um, the MJ-12 papers had broken. Oh, so okay. it was 80, it, well, it's actually early 90s. Uh-huh. And it, Tim Good had already published them. It was already out in the public domain. Right. And I was looking into the Roswell case to the angle of the, the Army because we were really focusing on the Air Force a lot with the Roswell case, the Army Air Force. But there was no United States Air Force. So those records would be with the United States Army. Right. So I was looking at that angle of it. And I kept writing FOIAs to, to uh, the Pentagon, to National Security Council, everything. So one morning I got a call in 1991 and woke me up. It was a Lieutenant Colonel Long Gazelle from the Pentagon. Mm. And he asked me if I was Keith Chester. I said yes. And he said, I have your FOIA here. And I wanted to know, why do you think the United States Army has anything to do with UFOs? And I explained my case, and he says, "Well, you're aware of the MJ-12 papers on you." And I thought that was that's what, what? I thought. Yeah, and I said, "Well, that's interesting." I didn't say anything to him. I thought, "Hmm." And he said, "Well, I can tell you, there's nothing to that." And the fact that nothing I, to the MJ-12 nothing papers. to MJ-12 papers. Okay, I'd be wasting my time and spending a lot of money digging into this. And that since he made this phone call, he assumes no response was needed to my FOIA. And so I said, thank really? you very much, hung up, and I called back. So he was really a real lieutenant he, colonel. He was who he was, right. But that's the closest, and what's that mean? I don't know. Huh. But uh, Certainly not threatening, but wasn't threatening. kind of weird, isn't it? That's the interesting thing yeah, that happened to me. But, huh. but no, I, especially with World War II, what kind of threat am I posing? Yeah. You know, it's such a historical, really historical niche. Right, that, right. Huh. Well, that's, that's curious that somebody would actually call you, though. I, I mean, that's like, what is that about? Yeah, I mean, why not ignore me? Just, I mean, yeah. Just answer we never my got FOIA. Your, we never got your FOIA. How's that? Yeah. I mean, the U.S. Postal Service, thank you very much. I, I don't know what kind of threat it could pose, but I mean, certainly, you know, things linked together, like you said, yeah. things linked together. If I think, looked at it at the conspiratorial essence. Right. If we are dealing with a technology that was in existence. Mm-hmm. By whoever side, that is still being utilized is still a classified project because who knows what. Right. Then that's understandable. That's the that's the scenario you can look at, and that's what a lot of people lean towards. Yeah. You know, I think there's a big emphasis now. There was an alternate space program. 
Uh, uh, yeah, we've had Wes Owsley. Uh, he worked for NASA, and he was came on to talk about Nick secret space releasing a new book, right? And so, and there's there seems to be something there mm. that indicates something. Obviously, is not all all for us to know, right? I won't go as far as what John Lear say it says, and there's a million people on the moon, and they're living on it. You know that whole. <laughs> I don't think anybody would go so far as what John Lear says, but that's. But yeah, you know, well, I mean. Do you find it curious, and you probably have noticed this, um, that when you tried to look into the Navy records, you, you, you mentioned that it's very difficult to get anything but, in, let me in that. clarify that. It, only because that's what, how I was told about it. I was asking about Navy records, and that's what you would find through UFO research. They're probably the most difficult to get anything out of. Uh, UFO related. Okay. But the Navy records were so extensive, I just did not have the time. Oh, really? Or, okay. or the desire to spend more after four years I was finished. I wanted to put something out there for people to build upon. Right. So that's where I fall short. I, I don't want to lead anyone to okay. believe differently. That's so it. the stuff was there for sure in the neighborhood. There's record. tons of records there. Hmm. But what's in those records, I have no idea. Hmm. But there seems to be no one looking. I mean, that's something that I've noticed over the years is that every really interesting thing that comes out of a FOIA request comes from Department of Naval Intelligence. Oh, okay. I find that weird. Um, and I know the USO people out there, folks that are really into that, are, are super intrigued by that, that aspect that Department of Naval Intelligence is what shows up on a lot of, or at least used to. I don't know what's come out in recent years that people have, mm-hmm. have gotten hold of. Right. But I remember, I don't know what researcher it was. He says, do you ever find it odd that a lot of it is Department of Naval Intelligence and not the Air Force. I didn't but realize that. that. I always found that a little weird. Um, I was curious if if you saw a correlation between that and no, you know the not. difficulty. And but it wasn't a difficulty of getting it. it was a difficulty of you actually being able to wade through all of it. Wade through it and did I want to devote any more time? I yeah. felt like I had enough to put something out there for people to build upon. Like I said, and I was hoping that would generate the interest. And that's what the book is. So you're going to do another one? How well, about another four years, yeah. Keith? <laughs> I'm really interested in the intelligence gathering missions, like mm-hmm. I was talking about, in following up Dr. David T. Griggs, mm-hmm. finding out what Robertson was looking into, finding out that information. So, yeah, I, I want to do that. Yeah. yeah. Keep going with that. Well, is your book uh, still available out there? I mean, website? Oh, yeah. Amazon.com. You can go uh-huh. to Borders, Barnes, order it through them. Okay. Or Anomalous Books, who published it. Okay. And we'll have a, a link to, I guess Amazon, we'll put a link to Amazon okay. up on the front page for you. And that book, again, is Strange Company. Military right. encounters with UFOs in World War II. Jeremy, final thoughts? I like the Foo Fighters. Um, <laughs> we're, putting Foo, we're putting a Foo Fighters song <laughs> in this episode. I'm telling you that right now. <laughs> yeah, when do we get the Foo Fighters on the show? Um, right. No, I, I, just, I found this fascinating because my, my whole vision of what a Foo Fighter is is, in fact, a blob of light. That's all I ever thought they were. I didn't realize people saw craft and people saw... Well, what appear to be, you know, craft by our standards, um, and all of that. So I, I find that really interesting, and I, I just, I would love to know if there were a way to tie in um, this type of thing with Valet's work, where that crossover moment would be, or even forget about Valet's work. How about just the airships of the 1800s, where people are seeing zeppelins or something uh, with with beings on them, like waving at them and dropping anchor and that sort of thing. Uh, is there a moment where sort of this mythological thing crosses over into a nuts and boltsy type thing 
uh, or not. I would love to see that, but I don't know. It's given me a lot of uh, a lot of stuff to chew over here. I'm and I'm I'm glad that you uh, did what sounds like the yeoman's work, where four years into it, you know you're not going to even be able to to get to everything. But I think it's great that you've started, and um, now you can point people in the direction to go to further the research. Thank yeah. you. I appreciate yeah, that. That's absolutely true. Uh, I mean, I th- I think you're right, Jared. I mean, that, the Foo Fighters, that's what I always associated with either a Buck Rogers ray gun, mm-hmm. uh, just by cultural contamination, uh, or those those blobs of light that you right. cl- see in the classic photos. And, you know, the idea that people are seeing things not dissimilar from what we're still seeing now. Right. Um, I mean, we are talking about earlier about you know, what, what, what will be the purpose? You know, it's like, I have to wonder if it's like, again, uh, Jerry, when we were talking about the idea of, uh, of this leading us somewhere like in time that this thing is suggesting other things, you know? Um, but when you're talking about a war situation, what are they suggesting? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) How about try this thing out? You could defeat Germany with this. I mean, I, it just, that kind of like for that 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 point of of suggesting is it doesn't make any sense to me at that point. It's like, oh, uh, but they were here with Korea. They were here in Vietnam. Yeah, yeah. But but what's weird about it to me is especially from the World War II standpoint is a, a sphere, a copper that still sticks with me. The copper That's sphere. The I can always picture that in my head. Like, can you imagine being in that time and seeing that sort of thing? The fact that it was copper colored. Yes. You know, I'm trying to hear or see something into like the color of the object and what it looks like and the right. sphere. Um, but that's the same thing we're seeing today. So it's almost like out of that point to today, there really hasn't been that much of a change in its presentation. Right. You know, whereas exactly. if you go back in Belay's book, I mean, what Jeremy was talking about with the clouds and, and the they were actually, no, this was actually, uh, you know, back in antiquity, they were actually seeing. Soldiers marching in the sky. That's how bizarre a turn that this had to it. This was not a like a visionary experience. These were many people seeing this occur over a battle being fought in a city. They're seeing a battle in the air. And this is not verbalized as something like what I just saw on TV about uh, India and, and you know, the documentation of, of airships fighting each other. This was manifestations of people in the sky with armor slugging it out, that sort of thing. I Very mean, confusing. I, I, that is just, well, I, you know, I, here's the thing. I mean, even, uh, in terms of like saying, okay, well, these who fighters, what would they be doing in the nuts and bolts version while they'd be monitoring our activity? Well, then you got to ask, well, how long do they do that for? I mean, how many wars do they need to monitor? Right. You know, like yeah. eventually every answer to me is completely unsatisfying. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it really I, is. It really just, is. It I is. mean, I am always very passionate about this subject, enthralled. I want it to believe. I want to believe. Yeah. And but faith and belief are two dangerous words in the vocabulary. <laughs> oh yeah. And uh, I become very, very just now more questions than I had to begin with, and now I'm like, it's like you well, can follow your theory of the day and really create enough interest in that theory to follow it because there's a lot of plausibility there. Right. But we don't have answers. And I don't think we will. And well, too many pieces fit the empty yeah. puzzle piece. I right. mean, there's too many 
you know, and then you've got the people force fitting it in there. So I mean, it's it's you could you could have picked any theory to ascribe to your book, the ETH, yeah. the the, uh, the the extra dimensional thing, any of that stuff would have worked. But I'm glad that you decided to present it like Valet does. It's a factual thing. We're not it's, it's, we're not interpreting it for you. It's here's the data. Make of it what you will. This right. needs to be followed up on further. So, That's a good point because really you know, that new book, Wonders in the Sky, is that what it's yes. called? That it's just you know I'm amazed by that. Too, yeah, so. it's it's an amazing amazing piece. Uh, but uh, everybody, go check out uh, Keith's book. Yes, for as and, much uh, bitching as we do about ufologists these days, Keith uh, seems like a very sound ufologist. Oh yeah, yeah. He's one of well, the good thank guys. You. Well, thank you. Yeah, so, we, support we, him. <laughs> yes, for Christ's sakes, buy the damn book. Um, uh, actually, I mean, it's it's weird because Keith and I are in the same room right now because Keith lives in Maryland too. Uh, and we met... <laughs> Early, mid-90s? Probably. 91, something like that. 92? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we went to the same uh, gathering of MUFON folks up in... Uh, up, up, well, Northeast? Probably, yeah, Northeast Maryland. So, uh, so we'd met before, but it's been, well, almost two decades since we spoke. Yeah. Well, yeah, <laughs> I, I saw you. <laughs> that's great. You know, um, so yeah, that's, that's how this came about. And, uh, and I'm really glad that, uh, Keith could come on the show and Keith, thanks very much. Thank again. you so much. I appreciate you guys. I hope your listeners enjoyed it. This is Mark Nesbitt. I wrote the ghosts of Gettysburg. You are listening to Paratopia with Jeff and Jeremy. If you record audio for any purpose, chances are you want it to be heard. You want to attract the largest audience possible who can hear your message. That's where we come in. We're CyberEars.com, a revolutionary Internet service that will host your audio files and help you promote and track its popularity. Considering hosting a podcast to the world, we have all the automated tools to make the process as simple and easy as it can be. No technical mumbo-jumbo to work out. CyberEars.com does all the work for you. You record it. We take care of the rest. So don't delay. Go to CyberEars.com today and register for a free trial account. Upload your audio files and get heard. With CyberEars.com, it's your audio on your terms. So the Jeff. So the Jer. I never get sick of that. How was Really? Yeah. No. <laughs> uh, so Keith Chester. A. How about that? Yeah. How about that? A. Eh? Uh, that was really good. I, I mean, I, again, I think w- one of the biggest things I take away from that was uh, not only, like you said at the beginning, was was Foo Fighters are a lot more than these little white blobs associated with that famous photograph, but that um, wow, interesting tie-ins of actual object descriptions to Jacques book with the uh, cylinders and, and the spheres and stuff like that. I mean, I have to say, I mean, we recorded that last night, not to say really in pondering it today. It's like, it does kind of deconstruct for me a little bit. One of my thoughts is that the appearance of some of these things has changed over time, but certainly not all of them has changed over time. Certainly from antiquity on up the rods, the spheres, the discs have been kind of present all through that. Yeah. I mean, it's almost, you could make the 
case that um, the entity interaction, if you want to call it that, might be something that's changed. You know, yeah. where it was yeah. people battling in the sky as human figures, I assume human figures. Um, right. To, I mean, if you if you go into uh, you know Marian sightings for the religious folk, um, uh-huh. to whatever fairies, elves, leprechauns, that sort of thing, you know, bringing you to fairyland and never wanting to return you into you know the aliens of today. Well, and I guess even the the people on board, you know, the eighteen hundreds airships, which sound like the same Zeppelin type things that were being reported. Right. Uh, in, you know, that Keith has outlined in his book. I mean, it seems as though, yeah, the craft might have stayed the same, but, but the, I don't want to say the entities have changed so much as the, the appearance of the, of entities or their function. Yeah. If that makes yeah, any that's, sense, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, we've gone from like, that's uh, the part that changes with the culture, the fairy lore, you know, back uh, in the day and, and now up to aliens now and that sort of thing. And we're drawing those, those connections to that phenomena back then. So clearly that's either. But even that is like, you could, you could say, you know? even that you could say like, well, the fairies of yesteryear could still be the same grays as today, but you couldn't say that Mary and the apostles or that a war scene in the sky are the same thing. Um, oh, so, absolutely not. So if we're going to draw these correlations the way Jacques Vallée does, then. I think the argue, argument can be made that the craft stay the same while the occupants are the thing that is, you know, based in cultural context. But then again, I mean, you, you also have to think about when you're talking about the, the airships from way back, uh, you know, depictions of them look a hell of a lot like blimps, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? So, I mean, there is, there is a portion of things that seem to reflect even in the craft. Uh, yeah, you know, I've mentioned – I've mentioned before, I mean, like when you're talking about sightings from the 1950s of, you know, I, I, I picture one solid photograph in my head that I remember seeing that, uh, God, I wish I could remember it, but it's, it's way back there in the back of my skull. But I, I did notice back in the 50s, a lot of the 50s sightings, you have uh, some unexplained photographs and some of the design elements seem to reflect the design element or the aesthetics of that time. Uh, henceforth, fins uh, on some of the 1950s stuff, which is is interesting. But I, again, you can't say that's the phenomenon because we honestly don't know from a photograph: is this the, the enigma, or is this the test of something, or is this a long gone hoax that is simply of too poor resolution photographically to make a determination? We just don't know. So that's it's kind of it. Kind of this episode kind of threw it up in the air for me that really. Um, the manifestations of whatever this is, parts of it are are constant, uh, and that's uh, in in a lot of ways that's even more interesting to me that you know a man in the black days of the Black Plague saw cigar craft and people are still seeing that today, and it was seen in World War II, and I don't know, it's like it does seem to be a constant in many ways, but uh, but yeah, you're probably right. The 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 interaction of what's inside or what's perceived to be inside seems to change with us. So I don't know. And and probably in future shows, we'll find something that pretty much dispels that too. Yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs> you know? I mean, I, it, it's interesting to me, you know, if you think of this in terms of extraterrestrials who are here, just, just looking, you know, mm-hmm. as Keith put out there, he thinks might be the case. It's like the more you really dissect that, the less that even makes sense because I mean, do they know about our bullets? 
for them to be able to absorb them? <laughs> like, that's mm. one question is like, if you shoot at something, um, how do they know that it's going to go right through them or somehow not affect their ship uh, when they just take bullets like that? <laughs> that would be question one for me. But then just things like sort of appearing and letting a plane chase you and then disappearing and appearing right behind the plane yeah. and just sort of taunting the plane and all that stuff. I mean, it's almost playful, like an alive thing. Would you say trickster? <laughs> yeah, it's I mean, play, it's trickster. playing the trick. It's playing the part. You it's know? playing I mean, a trick, but it could also be an organism at that point to me, you know? Well, I mean, I, when I hear about either the bullets going through the object or the bullets uh, penetrating the surface and not coming out the other side and just being essentially absorbed, you know, I could look at that and say, okay, one of two things or what? Well, there's one of many things, but you could say. If it's extraterrestrial, it's certainly some sort of defense uh, operation. There's technology that they've developed, developed that could do that. Okay, let's we could go with that. But you could also go with that these things aren't real in the sense of how real our airplanes are. Uh, they're real. They're let's go with real enough. But, but in, or, in order for that to be a defense, what I'm saying is, wouldn't they have to have studied our technology and our our defense weaponry and all that? before we ever took flight and started shooting at them to develop something that they are going to be assured that if they sit in front of a plane shooting at them, they'll be fine. Right. Well, I mean, you would have to, well, let's put it to you this way. If they are coming from the hereafter to, um, an extra dimension to whatever, if they're not extraterrestrial and they're some sort, some kind of other manifestation of something, then in order for them to be here, uh, I would think that 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 jump would and then say we're going to appear as this to them or we're they have to know how they appear to us. I mean, that seems that seems something obvious to me in a way that they would have to know how they're going to appear to us. Uh, clearly, there's eyes on a craft and, and clearly whatever this craft is, it's interacting with the airplane. So it knows it's watching it. I see you. You see me. Okay, that's a given. If they're able to manifest this thing here, then I would say they already know what the interaction was going to be. They can choose the level of ping a rock reel uh, already. I don't know if it would involve – I mean what if, what if uh, one of these things runs into an airplane? Uh, you know, is it uh, – you know, I, I, I don't know. I, studying us and studying our weaponry it's like that to me would be like me trying to study an ant colony and how they fight each other it's like that that just doesn't mean anything to me i i don't need to know how the technology works because all i've got to do is raise my sneaker right. uh, you know what i mean it's well, like yeah well and also they aren't there during you know the actual fighting it seems that he said most of the sightings take place you know on sort of peacetime missions or one person out there all alone, you know, right, right? Which to me gets back to your thing of notice us. And I think it gets to, I mean, whether it's on purpose or not, it's certainly in the air, so to speak, uh, of look how silly this warring is when we're here. It's like you guys are fighting each other, like for superiority. And meanwhile, I'm doing a loop to loop around your plane. <laughs> it's like, right. I mean that would certainly be our interpretation of of one one part of it, but it's like I, like I asked Keith during the show, it's like if you read Valet's book and you see this notion of suggesting 
or guiding or something like that. It's like you look at these World War II things and you go, well, what, what is, what's the purpose if there is one? What is the inference here in what's going on? I mean, you touched upon one just now, but what would be something else? I mean, what would be the reason other than you don't get much more anti-structural than war? <laughs> I mean, again, I, I mean, just to kind of reiterate, I, you think back to those guys at D-Day and you wonder, like, how, how did you even stand on wobbling legs and run out of the front of that thing and do what you had to do? I guess the answer to that in thinking about it all day today is, what else were you going to do? Stand there? <laughs> you know, you do what you have to do. I guess it just, you know, it's an immeasurable amount of courage to me to that. So, you know, trying to get inside the head of someone who's been in a wartime situation is hard to do. And I can't imagine being in that kind of mindset. Like he said, you're concerned with going out, doing the job and getting back home on the ground. That's your main focus. And then you've got this weird thing happen uh, right in the middle of that. It almost is the anti-structure in the structure of doing your very organized uh, you know, bombing run or your very organized patrol. It is injecting the anti-structure into the situation there, which I think is interesting. So I don't know, but, but clearly, uh, as Keith said, there's a lot more that we could try and find out, namely from – the Axis side, I would love to know what were the experience of their pilots and their ships and all of that. What what did they see? So um, I hope somebody picks the ball up for that. I mean, I, I sure as hell am not going to uh, to do that. It seems way too hard to me. I mean, that's tough work, man. That's that's time consuming, really tough work. Yeah. In fact, uh, I had uh, naively emailed Keith today and said, "Hey, why don't we put our listeners to work?" <laughs> Why don't you go get us those Navy documents and we'll mail them off to people and they can sift through them and see what they come up with and we'll call it and bring it back to you. And then he explained yeah. to me what the process of actually obtaining those documents is and it, it's just not going to happen. It's a monumental well, I mean, task. I mean we could say to um, to some of our, our Japanese and German listeners, I mean we do have listeners in those countries – um, hunt and peck around a little bit if you feel so inclined to do so and see what you can come up with and email us. And I'd like to say to our Japanese listening audience, I'm sorry for the inference of both our guest and myself referring to them as Japs. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize that until today, but I'm like, wow, when you're talking about the narrative of World War II and you're referring back to that time, it's just that, I don't know, it's it's insensitive. Why would you call them Jewish American princesses? I don't. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry for that. No, seriously. Uh, it's just it's part of I don't know the way people discuss the wartime. That's just a, a, a part of the verbiage that comes up involuntarily for a lot of people, myself included. So, uh, but to our listeners in those countries, I mean, if you can hunt around a little bit, I'd love to know what you can come up with as far as what what that side saw uh, as far as uh, the Foo Fighter phenomena. Very good. Well, let's uh, let's call it a night, shall we, old friend? Yes, indeed. All right. Keith Chester, thank you very much. Everybody, run out and buy his book, Strange Company, Military Encounters with UFOs in WW2. Uh, I think it's important that we support really good UFO researchers because they are far and few between. Yes. And uh, Keith definitely has done the work, and uh, 
God, a monumental task of putting that book together. So please go check it out. And Keith, thanks again for hanging out with me till about three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Did he see any DMT tykes at three? Uh, oh, <laughs> I thought I was going to see some. Uh, yeah, we just, you know, we just started talking and uh, after the show, and wow, before we knew it, it was three o'clock in the morning, or damn close to it. So uh, missing time. Uh, yeah, so next time you come for a visit, me, you, Lee, Keith, we're all going to get together and go out to dinner or something. So that'll be fun. Sounds good. Maybe there's bonus content for our subscribers there. <laughs> what? Hey. Oh, a steak? <laughs> yeah. Record the uh, record the dinner. <laughs> record us just <laughs> munching, and I'll just I'll just edit out all of the talk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. All right, folks. Till we'll next, next week. week. Bye.